folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says applesauce. No, no, I, I'm kidding. It says applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. Everybody and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and I'm Patrick Rapolin. We have a very special guest all the way from. You know what? I actually don't know what city in California you live in. Is it uh, uh, Los Angeles? Los Angeles. Oh, oh, wow. I I always assume everything all is all the way from Hollywood, California. Yeah, Los Angeles or around there. But then I realized I think you went to like did you go to Santa Barbara for college? Uh- I, yeah, I went to UCSB, yeah. uh, UC Santa Barbara, and then I lived in London, and then I lived in New Zealand, right. and then I just yeah, you got around. You know, didn't have a home for a while, so you know, all over pretty much. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I don't want to insult um, the, the fine state of California by implying all the cities are the same. Correct. Yeah, you've had a you've had a but they are yeah you've you've had your own accomplishments with uh, both music and and film. Yes, um, you yeah you've, you've made had, some short films. I'm assuming yes. award-winning short film, uh, festival. There you go. Not, yeah, it's, festival entry. It, <laughs> it's good. it's you know it's an honor it's an honor to be to be shown on the big screen. I think yes. no matter you know how many screens it could be just one, mm-hmm. but you know, hey, it's right. you're being you're being seen. No, that's it's something. It's because yeah. Mm. Anyway, we're going to be covering Tim Burton. Um, we mm. have a we have a couple emails, but and honestly, this is not I'm not no joke right now. Got an email the second we started recording. <laughs> really? Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and open it up and I'm read gonna, it live? Yeah, I'm just going to read it right live. Literally, okay. the email even nope, says perfect. zero minutes ago. Okay. Says, okay, may I recommend Eve of Destruction from 1991, back in a time when some B-movies still somehow made it into theaters, luring sci-fi geeks in. You may look at the premise and think, how bad could a movie featuring Gregory Hines hunting down a female Terminator be? Well, the answer is utter shit. And a shittacular entry may be the only way to justify ever seeing this piece of junk in the first place. Courtesy of Robert Renke? Renke? Oh. Renke? Yes, Robert Renke. I believe we have an email from him at the, at the top at the end of the... Oh, wow, it's so it all comes full circle. Yeah. It's nice so this, he's, there. By the way, he is referring to, in case you are just tuning in, our, uh, our summer shit-tacular, which is still going on. Um, Jim just did a sort of brief write-up of, um, what is it, Godsend? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll bring that up in the What We Watch, because okay, yeah. I want to tie that into another discussion we can have. Anyway, as I was saying, we have some letters, but for the... Actually, for the first time, there we got letters about the uh, about a director we we're covering before we record the episode. So we're gonna actually going to read those at the end. Um, but mm-hmm. before we get to any <clears throat> actual business, um, thanks for the recommendation, Robert. Oh, we might yes, check it out. Absolutely. Um, anyway, before we get into uh, any actual business, I'd like to announce. Um, well, first, I'd like to say uh, we've gotten a lot more listeners. Our listeners have been growing. Um, yeah. Cronenberg. Po- thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Uh, or, uh, I I know the sound of one person giving a round of applause does not. I will add some more. In, I will add some yeah. more in post. Please, yeah, add a, some kind of delay chorus makes it sound like a 
In fact, if you could just add, you know, the clip Monty Python always uses of the old <laughs> women clapping. If yeah. we could just put that in, that'd be great. Um, but anyway, uh, our last episode, our last proper episode, David Cronenberg got 400 downloads. Um, and at this point, I'm feeling we're getting a lot of emails, we're getting a lot of responses, and we want to sort of be more in tune with you, the listener. Correct. Um, so basically, we're uh, running a contest, which is uh, really a ploy for us to get information and sort of find out who our listeners are. So uh, the, the prize of the contest is um, anything on Amazon.com up to $30, um, and that's, mm. that's before shipping. Um, so uh, you can find a DVD, you can find Blu-ray. A Criterion? You, you can get a Criterion. Yeah. You know, honestly, if you, if you want to tell us, look, I, there's this copy here that it's used, you can get the com- – I looked up. You can get the complete Kids in the Hall series for like $28. Nice. Like yeah. so, if you look really look, you that's that's substantial. So um, yeah, so just send us um, in order to enter. All you got to do is send us an email with uh, your name, uh, just first name and last initial is fine. We're not really collecting for it. I mean, we just want to be able to order them in some way and announce a winner. Uh, location, you know, rough area where you're from, uh, your age, your favorite movie, your favorite episode of the podcast, and uh, the director that we haven't covered yet. And or haven't announced yet that you'd um, like us to, to to cover. Yes, that you'd most like us to cover, and um, yeah. just see the full list of directors we've announced. Um, just to just go on our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. We have the full roster for the whole rest of the year actually up. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, and if you go to the website, it's revised, um, little updated yeah. version of the website, and uh, yeah, we're going to be adding. Well, we actually did add something special. I haven't tested it out yet, but mm-hmm. I want to make sure it works. So I hope somebody will be kind enough to leave us a voicemail oh, that's that right. we could potentially play on the show. Yes. Do you have the number ready? I am getting it right <laughs> okay. this anyway, second. Anyway, um, again, these emails, this is just, we want to get an idea of what of what you guys are like and uh, what you want from us, what, what you want more of or less of. Um, so, just go ahead and, mm-hmm. um, again, I'll just say real quick, it's just name, location, age, your favorite movie, your favorite episode of this podcast, and the director that you'd most like us to uh, cover that we haven't um, we haven't listed yet uh, or haven't covered yet. And maybe we'll post this contest on the website. No, no, yes. Just all in the case information, you get all the information. Yeah, all the information will be posted on the website. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. If hopefully we'll get a lot of entries and we'll be able to announce the winner next episode. If we don't get many entries. We'll probably uh, wait another episode to announce it. Yeah, we probably will want, end up waiting a couple episodes. Okay, so just to, be, just to be on the safe side, just so we have enough entries, and you know. But yeah, thirty dollars that'll get you pretty much criterion of your choice. I bet you could find. I bet you could find like an, a vinyl copy of Victorious Big's "Ready to Die," which is if you if you're looking for a hip hop album to get on vinyl, that's what one I would recommend. Yeah, um, as t- sort of towards if you want to suck end. up to Patrick. Do that. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying, it's uh, you know, hip hop can be divided by like what medium they were producing it for, and you and can also was, maybe find that was towards the end of the vinyl era. If you really want to, maybe you can find a Wilco record on vinyl. Yeah, Wilco record, no. <laughs> Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot, or some other boring piece of shit. Ouch! <laughs> I don't mean to piss off any Wilco fans. Not my cup of tea. Anyway, so I wanted to announce that real that contest real quick um, before we got into. What we watched this week. Yeah. The movies we watched. The movies we watched. The movies. The movies we watched. The movies we watched. The movies. 
Jim goes first. Uh, yeah, excited. We are um, primarily going to discuss what we've been watching for the shittacular that we're um, embarking on this July, and it's it's been quite a treat. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, a torturous adventure. It has. Yeah, I mean, we're still watching great TV shows, to be honest. But that, that is that is how I've been getting by is by watching uh, by watching good TV shows on uh, like I just caught up on Sherlock. That's oh, a, that's actually a good. That's it's hard to even call it a TV show. Yeah, every episode is ninety minutes long, and there's only three wow. episodes in the first season. I kind of that's like how British that. TV works. It's yeah, sort of just yeah. like every season's like five episodes. Yeah, but and... like this, even like, and it's it's more of a movie. It's more of a single story. But this, like, even more so because it's literally just three feature length episodes. But anyway, yeah, um, go ahead, Jim. What do you watch? But um, <laughs> I watched a couple of movies. I mean, I I I've watched some. You know, a few horror movies because you know I've, I've I, I would see a plot synopsis on Netflix instant and just go God I got to watch that. Um, but th- I think there were three that all had very similar storylines or just elements that are akin to something overplayed in most horror movies, like a cat jumping out, and that's <laughs> that's, that's 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 what you come to expect mm-hmm. in a lot of horror movies. Just those kind of ridiculous jump scares. And um, this one movie I watched called The Horror Show, which even had an Alan Smithy writing credit, so that'll tell you something really? right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Um, original I mean, name, too. Yeah. And it was originally called House 3, and it was supposed to be the sequel to House 2, but it has nothing to do with that, if there is a house mythology of sorts, other than a it's haunted a thematic house. connection. Yeah. <laughs> and But it's really just... It's pretty much a carbon copy of Shocker, although I think Shocker might have come out a year or two after this. And uh, Lance Hendrickson is in it. Brian James is in it. Um, it's a really awful movie um, with nothing redeeming about it whatsoever. But then I watched two other movies right back to back after this that all had like just these insane, repetitive things that I sort of... Um, you know, did bullet points and put it on, on uh, as a blog post on the website. Right, right. Because, um, oh, hello, motorcycle going by. Yeah. Big, big truck. <laughs> anyway, uh, so these other two movies are God Send from 2004, which uh, stars Robert De Niro and uh, Greg Kinnear. And most recently, uh, an, a haunted house ghost movie once again called Insidious. And these two movies in particular had things that really bothered me and i'm kind of curious you know as to how can we improve horror movies in general because my issues pretty much rely on things that we might have even covered in our uh, top 10 uh, episode where we're talking about texas chainsaw massacre right and things that you know really bug us but the over reliance on score for one just wall to wall right yep Jumps, jump scare, jump, most of these jump scares are as a result of the score suddenly bursting right. out of nowhere with volume. And, it just bludgeons you with it. It's yeah. not. And all three of these movies had a creepy kid, and they, he was either possessed, having delusions, hallucinations, night terrors. A lot of these hallucinations are so much like The Shining. It's kind of sad, um, and I'm just I'm kind of getting tired of that trope as yeah. well. Uh, but the shining, the the shining, the music never cued you up to something. The music oh, would no. just get really crazy, and then mm-hmm. nothing would happen, and it threw you off edge, and that's why it worked. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah, he he would totally play with those conventions and expectations, and it would work in 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 the, in the movie's favor. Whereas this, it's just like so overplayed, and you kind of and you know what to expect, especially if you watch a few of these movies in a row. It gets actually it gets boring, and you know, even though Insidious had moments of utter creepiness, because if if you, if things are just relying on silence for a while and then something comes out of nowhere it can be effective especially when it's a haunted house movie but overall i'm kind of just i'm tired of the especially of the very final five minutes or something having one big last final twist oh yeah shovel on yeah shovel on fucking ruined that sort of thing right everything has to have a twist now um yeah and i just feel like there, there are some tropes that you can forgive like, you know, even to some extent, because I like John Carpenter as a filmmaker, even though the ward is pretty bad, some of the tropes in that movie tend to work, and I don't want to give anything away for those who haven't seen Shutter Island, but the trope at the end of that movie worked. Um, and a lot of it just has to do because of the filmmaker, I think, manages to use those in its favor. Probably it works in spite of the yeah. trope instead of because of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I, you know, I have like my. Uh, is there a is, is there a space shuttle landing outside your house, Stephen? Uh, it's yeah, it's the last space shuttle to land. Hmm. Okay, that's that's it's, kind of it's completely gone away. Make but a, that's make a wish. Yeah, um, I don't know if your window's open. Is your window open? No, my my windows are closed. All right. Wow. Well, anyway, crazy. Okay, my, we'll try to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, my theory is um, that horror f- horror film directors now are horror movie fans. Um, yeah, and I think that kind of ruins it. Whereas, like someone like John Carpenter, he's a fan of films and he's a fan of westerns, and you know, like I, I think of all of my favorite. Uh, uh, you know, horror movies, you know, really none of them were directed by people who are obsessed with horror movies because when I, I think like some, especially nowadays, cause the sort of the generation that grew up in the eighties with the horror boom and all the VHSs and sort of discovering everything. Um, and then, you know, things that just got easier and easier. The, that generation is now directing movies, um, in Hollywood mm-hmm. and they're just, they either need to make everything a, a reference to something or they need to like purposefully Paid. twist like or they need to purposefully be like well they did it this way in this movie so i'm going to do it a different way and like they're too in their heads um, yeah they're too self-aware yeah. and it's and i think more than pretty much any genre all you need for a really good horror movie is just to have fu- either have fun or just to be a really fucking good filmmaker or have some subtlety because it's not I don't know, like a lot of, I mean, I understand. It depends on the type of horror movie you want to make. Yeah. If you want to make a hostel, you're going to be over the top in, in parts. I think, I, I'd, I would actually say hostel is the one exception where Eli Roth is a super horror film nerd, and I think hostel is really fucking good. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredibly because, effective and, and fun. I think it's, again, I think it's because he has a story that he's telling. It's not a, well, wouldn't it be cool if a movie did this? Um, yeah, but I mean, instead, it's like, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It, instead of, like, because... And the other thing I'd say is just really go all out there and be original. Like, everyone is doing, well, what if I did a riff on this movie? Oh, here's a movie I had never seen anyone do a riff on. Instead of just, like, I mean, horror is, I think part of the reason so many people love horror is because it's just, you see crazy shit in horror movies that you'll never see anywhere else. And I feel like a lot of horror movies nowadays, they're either so confined into, I have to reference this, 
or I need to not reference this. Or, or have a lot of jump cuts with or, crazy visuals. Or it needs to be high concept, where it's, uh, I mean, I've... Like, you God's, saw... God's Send is about cloning and tries to be, well, has talking, meditation. I'm talking and, more uh, about stuff like Open Water or Frozen, which you you did like Frozen. Yeah. Um, and most people like, I, haven't, I still have not seen it, but... um. I didn't like all of it, but but it's, it, parts of it were really. I don't think worked. anyone's really. I think really, if, you, if you have a claustrophobic element, it's going to work. Like I think what yeah. makes the '80s movies so effective isn't that there's a lot of blood and gore or that there's a lot of boobs. It's that there's like they're so fucking original, and they're just and they really just commit to that shit. Like yeah, and they're not afraid to be silly uh, without being tongue in cheek and being super self referential. They're just. They're not afraid to be fun without having to worry about, well, is this fun the same way Evil Dead was fun? Or mm-hmm. I think a lot of horror movies today are also very concerned with just – they're basically just metaphors for healthcare or 9-11. Oh, or, God, yeah. You know, yeah. That, I, I have not – I only same saw – with science fiction too. I, but, I only yeah. saw the Saw movies up to Saw 3, but I heard that like Saw 6 or something is like all about healthcare, uh, that's, which is amazing to me. Yeah. No, I don't want those. I don't. I, I mean, I understand that there's going to be, uh, you know, like some hidden metaphors because a filmmaker is expressing themselves, and sometimes psychologically those things come out. You know, I, I mean, I like that stuff. I think I do too. You know what? Another thing might be um, CGI is not so much of the fun of right. those. You know, '80s horror movies. That's a good reason not to see the Thing remake because I'm <laughs> sure they'll inundate well, it with CGI. One of the things they kept talking about. I mean, again, this is. You take it with 30, you know, tons of salt. But one of the things they kept talking about um, when they were, like, talking about making the movie is, oh, we got the effects crew. I think it was the same effects crew who did Hostel or whatever. And they're like, we're, mm-hmm. they're really, we're really dedicated to doing practical stuff. But even if it's practical and assisted by digital stuff, like, you can usually tell and it's usually just, like, it, it the charm is gone because you're not seeing a, something someone sculpted. Yeah. I mean, I understand the idea of embracing originality. I don't know if it's even possible for, I mean, like, but, you know, someone like Quentin Tarantino who pays homage to all these amazing genres and these amazing films that came before it and even references them, whether if it's, you know, a particular camera shot or a song or something. Um, It's, it's, I don't know, there's something about it where, uh... You know, the end product turns out to be original, even if they're using elements from the past. And horror well, movies don't necessarily do that. And it's almost like I realize James Wan is not going to be, you know, Dario Argento or whatever. He's never going to have that level of originality. Because Insidious, oh, I want to make, make my own poltergeist. Death Sentence, I want to make my own Death Wish. Right. Dead Silence, I want to make my own Evil Doll movie. You know, and Super 8, I want to make my own E.T. Yeah. Right. Right, and it's almost difficult to bypass that now because we're so inundated with culture and the awareness of, you know, things are prevalent. And you well, can't... I think all again, I think all that is fine. And what separates someone like Quentin Tarantino from people, you know, like James Wan or whatever, is they have stories and characters they're interested yeah. in, and they tell stories with real characters. And I don't think, and I, this is something actually we're going to get into later when we're talking about Tim Burton, but I don't think that most of these horror movie directors, I think they grew up watching, as opposed to, you know, directors who grew up watching, like, Hammer Horror or, you know, Mm -hmm. the, like, Corman stuff where it was all about characters and mood and there were these storylines and it was a slow build. 
they got it. They were attracted to the gore effects and to the makeup and to the craziness. To the, con- to the concepts. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and yeah, and exactly, and high concepts. You know, basket case is a high concept reanimator. All these, all those eighties horror movies are big, and it gets. But because those movies were born out of what came before, those movies still had semblance. I mean, there's exceptions. Evil Dead's pure stylistic exercise, and obviously it works. But I think most of those stories have characters with arcs. And I don't think a lot of the movies these days really do that. No, I don't know if they're interested in that. They just right. kind of want to, you know what? I love Sam Raimi. I want to make my own Sam Raimi-esque movie. Right, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. kind of disappointing because I want there to be a reason to be invested in what I'm watching. Also, um, no more... And that never happens with uh, horror movies don't, now. Also, and this is probably the key reason why I think Eli Roth is a thousand... Like, a lot of people lump Hostel and shit in <clears> with <throat> Saw and, and all those other movies, but... Uh, here's the key reason I like his movies more. Uh, no, no crazy editing. No, thank you. I don't know why everyone has to try to be Tony Scott with the, uh, the music video shaky, style with the shaky cam and the and the rapid zooming. I'm just and, tired of hallucinations looking like natural born killers. Yeah, you know and that it, that editing style is really that, tiresome. Yeah, it's they're like where it's just they don't know how to make things scary, so they just like bludgeon you with editing and sound. Yeah, and it's it's so annoying. And that's the reason I everyone raved about the Hills Have Eyes remake, but I fucking hated it because it was shot and edited in that same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only recent remake I can think of that actually worked was the Last House on the Left remake. I think that yeah. was actually pretty effective. I, I think I like that. I'm not saying it's a better movie, no. but it's I liked it more than the original. Yeah, no, I, I definitely did too. I was surprised by that one. Um, but I'm just, I'm just like I said, I'm, I'm just waiting to be scared. And I think the only movie that sort of worked on me that we watched together was Wreck. Yes. And I can't wait to watch Wreck too. I have night. I still have nightmares about that. The final, not yeah. literally not, but you know, like that fucking final scene was yeah. just fucking Brutal. terrifying. But even that found footage stuff, that's all played out. Now. Yeah, that's no, true. Uh, the, the fourth kind was. Uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> did you see that? It, I, you know, I have a Mia Jovovich kind of uh, fetish. Oh, really? And it's okay. I, I, I watched it and we'll forgive you. It's you interesting know. because it, it was like the movie could have either been all drama or all shaky cam. It, it was, it was kind of a strange thing to go from the drama to the shaky cam and back yeah, and forth. Wasn't, it just felt, it felt unnecessary. Wasn't there thing like they're like, they were trying to say, oh, this is real footage because here's the fake footage. Like, with, uh, like they were trying to like I thought the idea was like they're trying to fool audiences into thinking that it was real. The shaky stand stuff was actually real because then they had dramatic stuff. Yeah, it was it was it was supposed to be the shaky cam footage is backing up the drama. Right. But in a way it was the drama just trying to be like, "Oh, this is so dramatic, so clearly when you see it from like a handheld camera, then it must be real." Right. Yeah. Like mm. they're, they they go to greater and greater. And actually, I think Last Exorcist Last Exorcism had a lot of bad features, mostly, you know, the ending, but I think that was a movie that did have characters um and sort of had a really interesting, well-done lead performance. Um, yeah, that's another, I'm, I'm keep having this problem with a lot of recent movies is just, they don't know how to end them. Oh yeah. That's the other thing. You gotta always have a twist now and it's, and then you usually end up, you know, cutting, cutting the legs off the story just so that twist works. Yeah. 
which surprises me that I actually like House of the Devil after having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It kind of goes against everything I just said. My favorite quote about House of the Devil is, um, I think it was from my friend Phil, who said that House of the Devil felt like someone watched a lot of 80s movies, found them really boring, and then decided to do an 80s, mo- 80s inspired movie anyway. Like, like it's it's like there's no love in that movie. It's just oh god, I hate maybe I hate it's House maybe it's my Greta Gerwig fetish. Could be that, but she's not in it that much. No, I I don't know. I can see something about that. Just sort of work clicking. There was for something some hypnotic. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell is with me? I like boring shit. I, I mean, I even so. like somewhere. So you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Why does everybody have that reaction? I guess I'm. I'm on the somewhere island all alone by no, myself. No, you get you got supporters. Um, Me and Ebert, future hopeful future uh, guest, uh, one of our favorite Twitter critics, Nick Tate. Oh yeah, she's a very adamant supporter of somewhere. I should I should rewatch it when she comes on just yeah. so we can talk again about it. The only other thing I talked about, I want to talk about really quickly is Horrible Bosses, which it was weird when it when it came out I, I like i saw the trailer for it and i kind of cringed because it didn't look very funny to me but then i heard two different camps one who fucking hated it and the other who thought it was hilarious and i'm just right in the middle i That's thought it was the worst place to be i know it's kind of sad i thought it was funny like i think it, and it's almost like a 90 minute long it's always sunny in philadelphia episode so take that, that for sounds, what it's, for what it's worth that you know i mean unbearable for a lot of people. That sounds That's, pretty awful, personally. Yeah. Well, it's the first time that I, I found Charlie Day to be grading. Maybe I can only take him for 45 minutes at the most. Right. But um, Colin Farrell's pretty funny, but he's only in it for like 10 minutes, which is really sad. But, you know, it's not great. It, but, you know, if you have nothing better to do on a Sunday at 3 o'clock and you're bored. Do heroin. I guess that's that's or what see I see. Horrible bosses. Yeah. <laughs> or do, you know what? Why don't you pick up a recreational drug? I yeah. think I think that that will end up being you know more of an investment. But you, you have something to talk about. Just go see Bridesmaids again. Yes, <laughs> because that's a movie that that's a comedy that knows that, that just works on every level and yeah. it builds characters, great set pieces. Horrible Bosses just has some wacky absurdity. You know the the kind of laughs that you get from them now, doing something outrageous and vulgar. Now, because he was announced to be the lead in the upcoming Tarantino movie, I want to ask how Charlie is, Day. <laughs> how is Jamie Fox in? Uh, he was for, he was all right. Yeah, because he was one of the few that was subtle. Yeah, that, you know he was he was he was tolerable. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't great or anything. Uh, he didn't have like the most amazing comic timing, but he had some moments that you know I thought were pretty funny. It's just, just one of those movies that you'll either laugh or you won't, and honestly, I don't need to see Kevin Spacey play the exact same role he played in Swimming with Sharks, and, you know, I mean, there there were things about it I found amusing, and I don't know, maybe if it had just been about Colin Farrell, it would have been funny the whole way through, in the same <laughs> way like Office Space. As a cougar. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, just, I wasn't crazy about Jennifer Ann. I'm I, I don't know. I think I've only liked her in, what, The Good Girl. That was it. But no, it's it's fine. It's just weird that the director of The King of Kong has gone on to make four Christmases and now this. I don't know. We'll see where that guy goes. <laughs> Documentaries are a whole different beast. That's true. Um, but um, yeah, or even Errol Morris couldn't make the the leap into fiction. I feel like our what we watch segment's just depressing for July. <laughs> it is. It's like I watched. You this. set yourself up for it, you guys. True. Uh, True. I mean, wanna... but just, just check the website because I've I've watched like six other things. If you want to, especially the Teen Witch tweets, 
that I did. <laughs> I, I, I did a live uh, tweeting during Teen Witch, and I collected all my tweets from that, and it's on the on the website. Kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I was drinking champagne again at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I saw um, two unnecessary sequels. Uh, one I'm only going to go into briefly. Uh, I, I think I went into briefly last episode. Uh, Titanic 2. Oh, God. Um, which is a real thing. It is about uh, – it's from Silom. If you don't know who Silom are, they're the uh, they're the people who sort of came to prominence in the mid- – Mid-90s. Yeah, no, not, I think this was – I think they started last decade. Um, okay. Well, I mean I think Tornado was one of their first movies. Well, I think they, wrote, they rose to prominence when they really – I think they really wrote... I mean, maybe it's just because that's when I was working at Blockbuster. Mm. But um, it seemed like every single movie that came out had an had a Asylum knockoff. I just remember Twister being the first one because I love Twister. Snakes and I was, train. Yeah. I was, I was tempted to watch Tornado at the time. And I watched it recently and it's fucking terrible. Yeah. And very boring. <laughs> yeah. It no. has Bruce Campbell and it's boring. No, well, I don't think Bruce Campbell means it's not going to be boring. It's, he's not the I, lead or but anything. But I was expecting some laughs, you know? Um... Anyway, that is that is sort of a main feature of them is basically they make their money because their boxes look and their titles sound close enough to major motion pictures that people who are just don't know any better will yeah. rent Transmorphers thinking it's Transformers. Like you're hoping it's going to be a so bad it's good experience. Well, no, well, I, I, yeah, so I guess there's also the people who think it's going to be so bad it's good, but the sad reality is they don't have the budget for so bad it's good. They have the budget for so boring it's horrible. It's, um, it's a lot of grandmothers being like, "Oh, I guess my son would like Transmorphers." Yeah, you know, no, like, I will say, yeah, when I worked at Blockbuster, like I'd say ninety percent of the people who rented it were like immigrants who didn't speak great English, um, or or just old people. Um, anyway, so Titanic Two is about <laughs> is about in the modern era. I think it's a hundred years after Titanic sinks. They decide to build another Titanic and call it Titanic Two in defiance of God and fate and everything. Um, <laughs> So uh, they do that, and of course, uh, an iceberg gets blown to, into its path, and and then most of the movie takes place in very ill lit corridors with like hoses just off screen spraying water on people as they yell, and it's I I kind of lost track of what was going on at one point because I couldn't tell yeah. where they were from. Pla- it's it's like if the Poseidon Adventure <clears throat> all took place in the same like like local crappy haunted house that pops up every Halloween. And they, like, had to make it seem like it was a cruise ship, so they, like, just kept going back and forth in the same rooms. It's really boring. There's some hilarious green screen work early on, but it's... Yeah, there's some of that in Tornado, that's for those, damn sure. It's, those, not, it's a lot like the Langoliers. Yeah, the yeah. Effects. Those Silum movies, they're not fun bad. There, there no. are. There's enough. I think there's enough fun bad movies out there. You sh- don't don't stoop to the concept's a lot funnier than the yeah. Exactly. Movie. Um, you watch the trailer and you laugh at it, and then you're done. Um, and then the other movie I saw actually got a uh, um, a very brief theatrical release by Bri- I mean, like three screens in America, and it is <laughs> yeah. probably. And I realize I'm coming off of talking about Titanic too, so believe me when I say it is probably the most unnecessary and unwarranted sequel of all time. It is American Psycho 2. Oh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you guys are aware of this. Uh, M- Mila Kunis. What? With Mila Kunis. Um, 
it's you, you know how uh, at the end of American Psycho, it's 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 sort of posited that all this took place in his mind, um, yeah. and that none of it actually happened. Another trope. Well, American Psycho two says, eh, what if what if that didn't happen though? What if it did? <laughs> like so, it it ch- it lops off the last fifteen minutes of American Psycho and <laughs> pretends that didn't happen. And it posits that Mila Kunis uh, is the only person to ever survive Patrick Bateman, um, where someone like a girl that she was baby that was babysitting her got abducted, and while that girl was tied up and tortured and killed and stuff, Mila Kunis killed Patrick Bateman. Um, so that's hundred. <laughs> that's that brief five minute setup. Hundred percent of the connection. Not nothing else. Not thematically, really. Um, there's really no connection between these two movies. Is she a, is she a up and coming um, business gal, Mila Kunis, in this movie? No, she's an she's an up and coming. Um, she wants to be an FBI profiler for serial killers. And Whoa, what the happens Dexter is Dexter thing going on here. Um, what happens? Well, what happens is she needs to get this really good teacher's assistant position so she can get a uh, internship over at uh, Quantico. <laughs> this is this is this is the plot that everything hinges on. Um, oh, is that the name of the little creature from Total Recall? No, Quantico, Qu- yeah. Quato? No. Quanti- Quanti- Sorry. That's, uh, the FBI, yeah, the FBI profiling headquarters in Quato. Um, <laughs> she needs to get her ass on Mars, basically. Um, Don't we all? So she ends up killing off all her competition. And it's so it's a movie of her like knocking off her classmates one by one. Um, it's horrible. It's not fun. It's not a fun slasher movie. Uh, it has... Another horrible trope, which is just wall-to-wall narration to cover up the fact that they don't know how to tell a story. Um, and it's Mila Kunis, like, 70s show era Mila Kunis narration, so it's really grating and annoying. And, <laughs> like, she's trying to be... It's Meg. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like she's trying to be dark, but instead she just sounds like Meg. <laughs> and it's, it's horrible. And uh, none of the death scenes are fun. And then, like... No Huey Lewis... And uh, yeah, no Huey Lewis, none of that, none of the and humor. Fuck this movie, then. None of none of the commentary on empty society, none of that. Um, and uh, William Shatner plays her teacher. Um, oh. And it gets to the point where she kills him, and you think, and it's like climaxes, like it's the end of the movie, and then there's like another fifteen minutes where they go, "Oh, you know how this whole story felt weird and complete? Well, guess what? It isn't. We're gonna add thirty twists at the end that you wow. weren't even wondering about." And then we're going to spend the next 15 minutes trying to correct or trying to uh, reach a climax for all of these things that we just set up. So it's like a There's movie. So many films are like they just want to overcompensate with yeah. twists. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, well, at least we'll have a twist. Yeah. <laughs> at least we'll have that. At least people go, oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen. What the fuck does it matter if you're not caring about what's going on for the Horrible. rest of the movie? Horrible movie. Ugh. Um, oh, God. So uh, the guy who did this, he went on to be an executive producer for Teen Mom. So, hey. Oh. <laughs> There's life after American Psycho 2. There is. There Apparently really is. is. Mila Kunis in an Academy Award-nominated film. Uh, w- William Shatner, admittedly, his career went downhill. Uh, I'm not going to say it's American Psycho 2 that he couldn't recover from, but... This is a Bela Lugosi sort of situation. <laughs> it is. It really is. Except, except like, if if Bella Lugosi was only starring in shitty movies, his entire career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but uh, Man, I can really go for some heroin now. Yeah, me too. Me pa- too. Maybe Stephen can cheer us up with what he watched. Yeah. Uh, I want to mention three things briefly. Sure. Uh, first of all, I did Journey to the Midnight Screening of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Nice. Very um, good. And it's it's fun because every majority of people dress up, including me. Right. Um, but it, it's strange because the Harry Potter movies, they're not great movies. They're great because we love... The characters. The characters. Yeah. And we override the fact that this is half of a movie. It has zero, like, the pacing is just all over the place. And, you know, again, I mean, this is a debate that you could go on forever about. Um, Should movies stand on their own as an art form? Or do you have to read the book? Do you have to read a comic book? Do you have to hear the song? You know, all those things come into question because nobody who's never seen any of the other movies, much less part one of this adventure, would understand what was going on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess reading the book would enhance the experience of watching the movie, but I I don't think you could understand what was going on, though, if you hadn't at least seen Uh, part uh, one of this, much less the other films. True. Uh, Well, I I, I don't know. I I mean, you you could say the same about Return of the King or... I guess I guess you you could probably sort of guess what's going on with Return of the Jedi, but not really. Like, I, if you're telling a big story, um, as which, uh, to my understanding, I actually I uh, I did not finish reading book five, and I never got past film three. So, but to my understanding, it gets a lot more. It's it's a lot less self-contained as the books go on. And maybe why no, part, no, course, why, maybe yeah. the, maybe why part three stands out so much is because it. The film could stand on its own. I don't, yeah. you know, I would say the same with the first one. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, I mean, though, in 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 a sense, um, I mean, again, all the movies. I feel like these last two Harry Potter films are sort of apologetic in a sense to fans. <laughs> they're like, oh wait, we forgot all this stuff from the other movies. Oh, and the other books. Mm-hmm. let's so cram these all. Let's cram a bunch of stuff from the other books oh, back in yikes. because we forgot and. I, ironically, or I don't know if this is ironic, but I, I personally find the moments that deviate from the books to be way more interesting because it's not, oh, hey, we're just going to try and replicate a scene from the book because we all know you love it, even though narratively it doesn't function within the main story. But, oh, hey, here's the moment that we organically had to get to in order to connect two scenes from the book. Yeah, well, people I have to realize to be a lot more interesting. People have to realize that reading a book and watching a movie are two completely different experiences. I, I, yeah. I even when I was a kid, I fucking hate people go, "Oh, the book was better because there's more stuff in it." Like mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's better; it's different, you, right? Like, yeah. and I don't mind that. I don't mind it if I read a book first and then the movie deviates. You know, as long as it's not to the point where it takes. You know, a major plot line and fucks with it in a oh. way that's not, I, I not think, interesting. I think as a movie we're going to be talking about later, I, I would gladly welcome fucking with the facts or the source material as mm-hmm. much as you need to to make the movie you want to make work. Yeah, as, yeah. Long, as long as it's a good movie. Right. Um, so, the, so another thing I watched, um, again, I just got a Blu-ray player and the – you know, basically, since Planet Earth has come out, everyone's trying to make the next Planet Earth. And uh, I noticed I that bought, I, I bought Galapagos, very fascinating. But Tilda Swinton is really overdoing it on the voiceover. <laughs> the islands, 
have been going on for a thousand years. And you're just like, <laughs> whoa, I, I love you, Tilda. You're the best white witch I've ever seen. But let's, you know, Richard, Richard Attenborough and Sigourney Weaver were good because it sounded like they were just talking to you. They weren't trying to be dramatic. It's you let the images stand on its own sort of thing. I don't, why do they always have to get famous? Like, there, that's not an attraction for anyone that Tilda Swinton. Like, there are so many professional voice actors who this is their shit they know how to do this shit and they always get like queen latifah or someone to to narrate this Kenneth shit Bonner to narrate dinosaurs you right know? that doesn't add to the experience <laughs> i don't ever yeah. go oh wow this celebrity voice in fact it's dist- i gotta read this because of this celebrity voice in fact it's distracting i like yeah. it when you don't know who the person talking is because like i remember watching was it planet earth that had sigourney weaver uh, the American version, yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember watching that and just thinking, like, every every scene, every breathtaking view of, of pelicans scooping up fish or whatever that I saw <laughs> was sort of tempered with, uh, huh, Sigourney Weaver likes pelicans, huh? Like, <laughs> like, I began to think about her take on everything, and I began to see it through a Sigourney Weaver prism where I'm like... Uh, she liked blue whales. Yeah, like, oh, do you, do you think she liked blue whales already? You think she mm. read up on blue whales? So, or she thinks she just read from it? Like, that was, it was so distracting for me. Um, Especially the part yeah. where she starts talking about the majesty of xenomorphs. Because then I'm like, <laughs> you don't believe this. You've been trying to kill them for four movies. <laughs> they, they sponsored her on this one. She had to sell out. <laughs> um, it, it, so that was fun. Um, but the last thing is, I, I basically have an obsession with Futurama and I just leave it on all the time. And I listen to the commentaries maybe more than watching the original things. And I I might have to get your guys' perspective on this. Are you guys big commentary folks? Because I I feel like you guys are sometimes, but, uh, you know, maybe not. I love love commentary. Even the worst movies, I've always learned something. Unless it's – there are commentaries. uh, William Friedkin's really bad. He just sort of narrates what's going on. Um, and Robert Altman's bad because he just goes silent for long periods of time. But oh yeah, most commentaries, especially if there's more than one person, um, are oh I always learn something. I remember I watched the commentary for Halloween Resurrection, and I learned that <laughs> the, wow, <laughs> yeah, and and the way that they light movies, um, the way they light like night scenes, that's called Alice Blue because they're not it's not actually in the dark. It's lit blue, so you mm. and it represents you know dark mm. and they call it alice blue and every, whenever i watch a movie and i see it shot like that i'm like oh, alice blue yeah i love watching the extras supplemental features on most dvds and including listening to the commentaries and i like i've been telling patrick i'd be willing to watch the rob zombie making of devil's rejects far more than i would his movie because i'm interested in the process of filmmaking or what a filmmaker a went good, through and that is a good documentary um yeah, especially like, I think cr- one of the first times I remember seeing Lost in La Mancha and like was just in awe of I mean, I've seen a lot of documentaries before right, right. then, but I'm just really interested in the process of what it takes to make a movie and what the filmmaker goes through on a personal level to get his story told. And and uh, about going back to to Futurama, Stephen, um I think what sort of makes TV commentaries like even better is that I feel a lot of times with movies um, directors, especially if it's a sort of a commentary recorded after the fact or just when it's released or whatever, um, directors feel the need to sort of encapsulate the whole pre-production, post-production reception experience. Where uh, and where the stuff I really like is just the production, the creative stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And I feel like with TV shows, because there's so many episodes, they never talk about, well, this part of Futura, like, they don't, they don't spend a lot of time with, well, at this point in the series, we weren't doing a lot of this. They spend a lot of more time on individual tiny things and details about the episodes, and I always love that. No, I mean, what's, what's great about Futurama, and sometimes the newest volume that was released when it came back is actually the best one because the original series, they would sort of just sit and watch it oh, for a yeah. few minutes. But but this one, they've kind of, I feel like they've kind of taken rein on it. And again, David X. Cohen, the executive producer, like knows a lot of facts about, like he actually knows his own show really well. So it's really great when you can learn something like I feel like for me commentaries are worthwhile when you learn something new yeah. about the show. And um, o- often uh, it'll it'll be a learn something new about the specific show, but often you just learn something new about show business and yeah. and how these things happen and um yeah, I I think I find especially with animated movies um and comedies like things are just so because they're not again they're not discussing well this is an interesting character arc they're just so focused on the construction of jokes and this gag and oh the animation came back and we don't know why he was shaking or you know like yeah it's always so much more interesting than if it was commentary on something like like Sopranos has some commentaries but it's like three commentaries per per season so it's always a lot more about the big picture. Whereas I always find the the little details so much more fascinating. And but- I, I get a joy out of listening to directors, you know, reminisce, but also just like laugh at something that happened, or you know, they they have a really great memory. I, like the the used cars commentary might be my favorite commentary of all time because it's Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and Kurt Russell, almost like you know, drunk buddies getting together. <laughs> And it's like <laughs> that might they, be Kurt Russell's influence because the exact same thing happens so on the fucking the, great. the thing commentary Which and also the Big I Trouble love. in Little China commentary. Yes. Just put Kurt Russell in all your yeah. commentaries, and I'm happy. Yeah, totally. And, and Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> when he did commentaries for Boogie he Nights, especially. Oh, yeah, wow. for Boogie Nights especially, it's fucking great. Yeah, he has so much energy and so much passion and love. He's, yeah, he's one of the few people who really pull off this solo commentary. Yeah. Um, it's almost so, like listening to podcasts. It's like you learn. I mean, that's why I like the WTF podcast so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you learn more about not just the process, but them personally, what they've gone through, or you know what they've gotten out of the experience of making their art. Soderbergh always has good commentaries because he likes to have a dialogue during the movie. Um, hmm. I strongly I recommend. I, I need to listen to Sex Lies and Videotape. Sex Lies and Videotape. Mm. I think he has a Neil LeBute on. Ooh, like um, he always has someone—not necessarily someone who's even involved with the movie, but um, like, for the Skitsopolis, he actually he man he pulled it off. He had himself on. It was <laughs> it was him having a conversation with himself. Are which, you a fan wow. of that movie? I like that movie. Well, it's a lot. like yeah. uh, hmm. uh, Richard Kelly had Kevin Smith on the Donnie Darko extended DVD. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> I think that, that could be hit and miss. I, and I think Kevin Smith, as long as you, as long as you can get him to not talk about Kevin Smith, I agree. Uh, I think Kevin yeah. Smith is a great orator, and I think I think he's a good person to have on your side. Um, yeah, some other good I've commentaries. Yeah, what are some of your favorite commentaries, Stephen? I, I appreciate um, because a lot of times when you get a certain filmmaker like James L. Brooks or something in Spaceballs commentary is awful because the whole time he's just like, oh, this was fun or this was fun. Yeah, but that would be Mel Brooks, by the way. Sorry. But but I, I, I kind of like scholarly commentary. Like a lot of the Kurosawa commentaries for Criterion are really good because oh, really? it's somebody who spent their whole 
I mean, they're written books on the material, so they're never short of something to talk about. Whereas I feel like if you were to get Kurosawa to talk about it, he's like, well, this is just a mysterious process, and yeah, there you go. No, yeah. Ebert's commentary for Dark City is quite good. His commentary for Crumb is also good. I haven't listened to that uh, yet. I, I also appreciated the um, Day After Tomorrow commentary. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, uh, mostly because Roland Emmerich, again, is... He he's the he's the poor man's Warner Herzog and uh, Ooh. He, he, <laughs> okay. I would like, love he to hear like, you. How is he the poor man's Warner Herzog? Well, he he you know he's dealing with these subjects of nature and the environment and everything, and he's like you know talking about how the the tornado and sweeping L.A. represents all this stuff. And then the producer is also on the commentary, <laughs> and he comes and he's like, "Well, you know, we just thought it'd be really fun if we had a tornado sweep away you know, <laughs> wow, to, to tell the truth." Yeah, that's, that's Michael sort of Bay this, meets Werner Herzog. That's it's, a, it's this it's this awkward thing where 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 Roland Emmerich is really taking it seriously, and the producer I I can't remember his name at the top of my head. He would totally undercut everything Roland Emmerich would say you, in if, in a way that was just <laughs> it was comedy gold. It was it was it was like a perfect addition to the day after tomorrow. I really I really recommend listening couple, to that commentary. Yeah, that sounds good. I that is always good. Couple commentary tracks that are sort of like that. Um, one of my favorite is Seed of Chucky with the director. Oh and uh, Jennifer Tilly, because the director is doing that sort of bullshit thing where he's just like, oh, well, it was so great to work with Red Man because, you know, he's so charismatic. He's such a charismatic <laughs> performer. And then uh, and then just Jennifer Tilly will just fucking cut cut into every single thing. Like he's like, oh, so, you know, we, we just really excited to work with Red Man because he's just so talented. And Jennifer Tilly was like, actually, I think they just wanted him to do a song on the soundtrack. And there's like a oh. long pause. And then she goes. He didn't do it, though. (laughs) And the director goes, no. (laughs) And they kept all that in. Yeah. Uh, Another another one sort of like that would be um, um, on the Criterion version of Armageddon. um, Ben Affleck sort of like Michael Bay goes into things and Ben Affleck. At one point, sort of the most famous part of the commentary, Ben Affleck goes, just totally brings up the point that everyone is thinking, which is, wait a second. Why the fuck is it easier to train oil drillers to be astronauts than astronauts to be oil drillers and then like michael bay's like well you see because you know this scene right here where he's talking about where drilling is an art and science and ben affleck's like no but if you're fucking astronaut that takes forever you can't become an astronaut and, and then and then michael bay eventually just told ben affleck to shut up <laughs> <laughs> and again they keep that in the commentary i like yeah. how that like the commentaries are so on, on certain movies they really like are just like okay we didn't want to take let's let's just slap it in like nobody's ever going to listen to this don't worry um oh <laughs> yeah i should look into this okay two, there's got to be a website listing of great commentaries two more too. great things um one on the sctv uh the first volume at shout factory they didn't really release seasons they're just like volumes of yeah. like eight episodes each is kind of bull but whatever um on one of the episodes joe flaherty and eugene levy are on and they're doing commentary and they're just talking and stuff and at one point there's there the character Bobby Bittman is on and they're doing a bit about like how he is a cokehead and he's testifying like in Senate and uh, Eugene Levy brought up the point where it's like uh, well the coke was really big in uh, SNL and everything but uh, you know up up uh, up up in Canada where we were doing it, it was we we really didn't ever go any higher than weed we didn't really do any higher than marijuana and then just Joe Flaherty just asks you ever do coke. 
<laughs> there's, there's this long silence, and you're just full like, confidentiality. Yeah, this, this long silence usually he's like, well, I'm, you know, and and Joe Flaherty's like, I did it once. It was it was all right. Well, I mean, <laughs> and Eugene Levy tries to move. The SNL guys have sure come out about their cocaine. Well, right, well, right, but it's just it's just like. You could tell that it was just like the sucker Awkward. punch that Eugene yeah. Levy wasn't expecting. I'm looking at your DVDs and I'm hoping that Dreamcatcher has a commentary because oh, I'd like to hear that'd that. Be shit. So great if Dreamcatcher. I don't know had if commentary. it does. But good um, lord, is that another uh, commentary briefly to again this undercutting idea is the uh, Resident Evil commentary of Paul W S Anderson, the other Paul right. Anderson, and uh, uh, yeah, and, I, w- uh, I won't get producer, those confused. And uh, Mia Jivovich. Again, my my love and yeah. um, Michelle Rodriguez, and again, it's the camps of the bullshitting artists, and then you have Mia Jivovich. Like, they're just here to look at my tits, like they're just here to see me naked. <laughs> like, come on, let's let's not intellectualize this. This is Resident Evil, and it actually works really well. It made it like a fun play, you know, a, a, a men versus women sort of game. That's, oh, that's it, great. It's a fun commentary to listen to. I love when they find the game. Um, there's the uh, another great commentary. <laughs> I love I, I, I do love this subject because I love commentaries on sideways it's Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church and Thomas Hayden Church uh, has this incredible vocabulary and he keeps coming up with the most like obtuse and ornate phrases he possibly can and Paul Giamatti just keeps trying to talk and then and then Thomas Hayden Church will be like, oh, you mean her undulating unfettered bottom (laughs) just like fucking crack up Paul Giamatti Uh, it it becomes a game where they where he Thomas Hayden Church just keeps trying to find the weirdest ways to say things um, another one, and back to Soderbergh, uh, the really good commentary, highly recommend, is on the movie The Limey, because he has the screenwriter, and the screenwriter and him had major disagreements about the film, um, and they actually hmm. like air out those disagreements and have like a sort of debate about it. Um, oh wow, that would be great to listen. Yeah, to and it's you know, and you can tell that it's like an actual debate, like they're. Like wow. the like they ca- both cared about it, but since the movie's already been made, the stakes are low enough that it doesn't feel awkward. I um, wish more commentaries would take that approach. Well, it's—I yeah, mean, it's, it's hard. I like that. I like that. Comment, especially nowadays, now that the DVD boom has sort of died, commentaries are just an afterthought if they even exist at all. They all want the Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, One day I'll get the Blu-ray. I'm glad you brought up commentaries, though, Stephen, because that is like a passion of mine. And I... No, I—it's—it's it's embarrassing sometimes to admit that, like. For something like Wally, where I've seen the commentary more than the movie itself. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, 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 maybe I should still be embarrassed, but it's okay. I, I remember distinctly thinking, and maybe it's because I've seen Spinal Tap so many times that the uh, <laughs> the in character commentary on Spinal Tap was funnier than the movie. That might be true. Like they were just yeah. they were just I improvising, too, yeah. and they're like, "Whatever happened to that house?" It's like, "Oh, they chopped it up into bricks and made a road." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it's like, "I like that sweater. Whatever happened to that sweater?" And, uh, and it's just like, oh, it had, we took it to the dry cleaners and they wouldn't return it because it had stain in the shape of Jesus. Like, <laughs> they just, like, keep coming out with these, like, crazy things where they're, like, they keep pointing out, like, just people who walk by, like, oh, he's dead now. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's real. So, yeah, that, uh, that in-character commentary is brilliant. Um, I, th- I like that more than the, uh, uh, I think Adam McKay. Uh, and uh, Will Ferrell always do insane commentaries. The one hmm. on uh, Step Brothers is is actually conducted by John Bryan. There's like a full oh score. <laughs> well, I, why haven't I listened to that then? And there's like a like an NBA player stops by. Um, 
Yeah, they they do. Uh, the Mister Show, Mister Show commentaries are great. Well, they'll uh, they'll get bored, so they'll just play games. Like they'll just uh, they'll just like take a scene and they'll just put in their own dialogue over like over the like lip syncing. Because they just get bored, or they'll just be like, if a character, a recurring character is on screen, they'll be like, "Oh, look who we have in the audience! I mean, look who we have in the studio right now. Hey, it's uh, Mackenzie, and it's Mackenzie Phillips, and then that guy will show, you know, be doing that character. It's those are those are a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to get get a list together, and maybe if, maybe if the audience wants to send us oh, more absolutely. suggestions As, for that commentaries. Was about favorite commentaries, I was going to say, yeah. send us emails about your favorite commentaries because I'm always in the mood to look for more. I'm going to have to look up that uh, both Resident Evil and Day After Tomorrow because those yeah. both sound great. It'd be even better for me if I could even put them in my iPod because <laughs> I'm hardly at home. Yeah. The, so, the District 9 commentary, really briefly, it's funny because it was made a day before the movie came out, before um, Neil uh, Bloomkamp knew the success that it would be. Oh, right. So he's like, he's so timid about like, well, I don't know if this is going to work or I don't know if this is going to be oh, this. Oh, God. He must have been so nervous, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, dude, two, like he's like, man, the movie's going to be released in, in, in three days. I don't know what's going to happen. And you're like, if only <laughs> after. Yeah, it's, a, so. it's a thick air of irony over the whole thing. That's great. Yeah. Um, I believe that's uh, that might be it for what we watched this week. Yeah, yeah, we're ready nice. to move on to our director of the episode. Yeah, Mr. Tim Burton. Burton. He works real hard and makes lots of cash. Daylight come and he won't go home. He's a freaky dude and his hair's a mess. Daylight come and he won't go home. Original and Johnny Depp's his pal. Daylight come and we won't go home. Mary Helen about the Carter and like CGI now. Daylight come and we won't go home. He made Big Fish, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns. Daylight come and we won't go home. Ed Wood, Corpse Ride, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Daylight come and we won't go home. Born in 1958, Tim Burton got his start as an animator at Disney. He would later go on to ride that animated sensibility to both artistic and commercial success with dark, idiosyncratic blockbusters such as Beetlejuice, Batman, and Edward Scissorhands. In 1994, Tim Burton released Ed Wood, a film of a decidedly different flavor, abandoning his usual focus on art design for a touching human story that echoed his own relationship with the late Vincent Price. Ed Wood became Tim Burton's greatest critical success, even winning two Academy Awards, including Martin Landau's Best Supporting Actor Oscar. You flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism, so Nick Nelly without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Okay, so Ed Wood. Um... Ed Wood. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> you had I so had much. to emphasize the title. 
it's so important. Okay, the reason I, despite I have my problems with Tim Burton, I think we're going to get more into this with the next movie we talk about. Oh, we will. When we talk about uh, his career in general. But the reason I can never, ever write off Tim Burton is because this is a really fucking great movie, and it's great because of him, not not like in spite of him. Yeah. Um, Agreed. It's it's just one of those rare examples of a project that comes along where – it's just all of the stars align perfectly, and it was just the right script, um, tackled the right way with the right actors, uh, and it where it emphasized everything that Tim Burton, you know, that made Tim Burton a good movie, a uh, good filmmaker, and then sort of was able to avoid most of the pitfalls um, that his films usually have. Yeah, it didn't mm. get overwhelmed in the quirky sensibilities no, of some I, of his I, earlier work. I, in fact, one of the things I was watching it when I was watching it this time, I was trying to think what did the black and white photography add mostly? Um, and I think it, the way it's shot, I mean, it, there were times where I was blown away because I felt like it generally was a movie from that the fifties or the forties. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the, the way the framing, the, you know, there's not super, the way the camera moved, it just it felt so organic. Shots, to that shots, era. Uh, shots would hold longer. Like that, that first scene in the uh, restaurant where they're reading the review, I think is all done in mostly one shot. Um, yeah, and that and that felt. Did they use the exact same equipment? No, no, think? it's not. A, it, I don't think it's <laughs> no. like a because it certainly looks. I don't think it's like a Barry Lyndon or even a. Right. I think House of the Devil also used like sort of uh, vintage equipment. I don't think it's that, but Munich. The other. Th- <laughs> The other thing is that um, being in black and white me- meant that all of Tim Burton's go-to things w- in, with color and with – I mean this isn't the kind of story that would have elaborate costumes and set design anyway. But mm-hmm. like it really like forced him to sort of rein that kind of thing in because he couldn't uh, do the sort of things that he normally did with uh, color and sets and stuff or costumes. <clears throat> And it's the setting too. It's the it's set in 1950s LA, and other than these great miniatures of Hollywood of the panning over the miniatures, I mean, it's boring suburbs. Sort yeah. of, you know, Bella Lugosi's like little suburban house. Like, there's there's no way you could German expressionize that in yeah, any way. Right. Um, but and then the other thing is, I think most of Tim Burton's best work comes when it's personal, and uh, as as I mentioned in the intro, um. This this sort of uh, what sort of inspired him to go on the project was that it resent that the relationship between Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi sort of resembled uh, his relationship with Vincent Price, where he just sort of met him at the end of his career and no one really wanted to work with him and he was just in awe and I mean for God's sake like Tim Burton's sort of breakout short film is a story about a boy who it, and it's pretty clearly autobiographical <laughs> a boy who just wants to be vincent price and live in the vincent price world and um and you can tell because i feel like a lot of the times tim burton he comes up with a premise or a concept but he doesn't really fully commit to the story and the characters and their arcs um but you you really do feel the relationship between the two um he he invests a lot of his energy in the environment he creates the set design Sort of the more artistic um, facets of of filmmaking, and I, I I feel like sometimes to his you know detriment, but in Ed Wood, it just seems like everything comes together beautifully, and 
he tells a really humanistic story and he tells a very relatable story about an underdog and he's always had a fondness for outsiders. But in this, it seems less like a, you know, goofy off the wall manic caricature, like someone like Beetlejuice or someone too reserved like Edward Scissorhands. But Edward, and maybe it's, I don't know if it has to do with the fact that he's telling a true story this time of an era that he has obviously a lot of affection for that helped in this case. I don't even know, because it's, I mean, he, the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize is Tim Burton, I, he doesn't really write many of his scripts. Right. I think he did Corpse Bride. Um, and obviously, he helped shape, he didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas, but he helped shape that story. And Edward Scissorhands' story, he co-wrote with someone. But <clears throat> Frank and Weenie. Don't yeah. forget Frank and Weenie. <laughs> the, great, the great Frank and Weenie. Uh, he came up with sort of the premise of Beetlejuice, but... Um, the script... This time it's by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, okay. who did People vs. Larry Flint and Man in the Moon. Two Again, movies about a couple of weirdos. Bi- biopics yeah. that uh, that sort of um, sidestep the usual, um, the usual biopic um, conventions where it's, well, here's the, where the scene is, they're a child, and this is where they first learn, know that they want to be a musician or whatever. And yeah. Because it just focuses on the parts of the person's life that is interesting. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the Edwards, the story, I mean, it, I mean, it covers when he first gets into filmmaking, but it certainly doesn't end at the end of his life or anything. It ends no. maybe at, at the peak, like you said, Patrick, like it's the most interesting part of his life. When right. Plan 9 for Outer Space came out, that was the most, that was the most interesting part of his life. And it, it wasn't going to ever thematically, you know, end in any way more and, interesting and he's, than that. And he's, and I mean, and it's not like there was nothing else in his life that was interesting. It's, I mean, he was dressed up in women's clothing by his mother as a child. And right. after uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, he sort of devolved into alcoholism, which is covered in a, like a text at the end of the movie. He devolved in a, a sort of alcoholism and making these cheapo, like nudie kind of movies. <laughs> um, and like, you could do that too. And it could be the rise and fall and it could be a tragic story, but... They really do just focus on the relationship with Bela Lugosi as the backbone and this optimistic person, this sort of spirit that could not be beaten down. Because um, of his passion for filmmaking. And that's actually yeah. something, because I, I, I watched Edward Scissorhands. I watched a lot of Tim Burton movies in preparation. And the thing about Edward Scissorhands is the lead is such a, just a mope. He just mopes around and he's not, he is not really in control of his own destiny and... <laughs> Um, Billy Connolly in Big Fish is sort of the same way where it's just sort of him moping and complaining like I feel like a lot of Tim Burton movies the character uh, Sleepy Hollow which we'll get to the <laughs> is one of the most ineffective lead characters in any mystery I've ever seen um, but Ed Wood is, just gets shit done <laughs> you know he's he doesn't care he'll do what he has to do he'll he'll trick people into being in his movies he'll get all of his friends baptized yeah, uh, and you could see, you, and you could see why, and you could see why they would. Yes, totally. And I actually um, watching a lot of other um, Tim Burton movies uh, with Johnny Depp in them. I began to realize I don't really like Johnny Depp as an actor very much. Uh, I feel like he makes acting seem very hard. Like everything, like you see every bit of effort that he puts into it. A little too much energy in some roles, but for some reason it works with. Ed Wood. Well, yeah, because it was wonderful. It was, it was 
inspiring. C- it's almost like a restraint. Like I'm so tired of Johnny Depp. He's just see, going back to this. You, you remember why people were so obsessed with him back in yeah, the day? Yeah, and it's and and it because he plays uh, cartoon characters. But I think everyone. So but I think everyone in the movie kind of regards him as a cartoon character in Ed Wood. So I think it works better. Yeah, um, as mm. opposed to sort of not acknowledging it. The other thing I sort of noticed, and maybe it helps that his passions we can sort of relate to. I yeah, mean, obviously well, yeah. we love movies, well, right? And he loves movies and making movies. If you want to, I mean, it's a pretty easy go-to compelling story as a low-budget movie because it's just such an impossible feat to get it to work, and there's so many people and weird personalities involved. It's a very that's why it's a you know a popular story to go to, and this is no different. Um, one of the other things I really appreciate about this movie was I always knew. Well, Ed Wood's weird, and he's too hyper and manic and stuff, and he finds these other people who sort of support him. But I never really realized... Um, apologies, the uh, there's some kind of static that's been happening. Um, yes. So apologies to the listeners. It, it'll go away. Um, one thing I never really realized is that that the people who do come to him are... It's never really explicitly stated, but it's pretty much like the closeted gay community of in Hollywood. Um <laughs> Where, uh, hold on, what's, what's well, the mean, character Jeffrey Jones plays? Chriswell. Yeah. Chriswell's yeah, like the, the very, psychic, yeah. Yeah, very co- clearly, you can tell with the kind of the people he hangs out with. He's very kind of like a very 50s kind of queen, uh, and, and he, of course, and he makes a special note that he knew about Glenn or Glenda. And uh, I reminded there's a there's a documentary, I think it might still be on Netflix. It's really interesting called The Celluloid Closet, and it's about, uh, the history of of gay of like sort of the way um, gay people were per, have been portrayed or even represented in film, mm-hmm. and there were these and there was like a couple different interviews where people were just talking about how because they just felt so alone and so weird. If they ever heard, um, like there's this one uh, I can't remember her name, but there was a lesbian filmmaker who just said like if there was anything that felt like gender play or that was like something really butch or something kind of like hinting at gay, they would rush to see it and they would see it like three times because they just had no other outlet. Like she was talking about like this Western where this woman was very harsh and had very short hair and was, you know, beating up other women and stuff. And it, she was talking about it like that was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen because they don't say she's gay, but they sort of hint at it. And you get the idea that all these sort of weirdos, they all seek out and find Ed because he had the guts to it's make no this, shame, right? Yeah, and he to make sort of probably the first, you know, movie that's explicitly about uh, you know sort of <clears throat> queer issues of trans transgender or tra- not transgender but um, transvestitism and things like that, which sort of climb that all sort of solidified for me in the amazing probably my favorite scene in the movie. In the when they're celebrating, I believe the the rap of uh, Bride Bride of the Adam. Bride of the Adam, <laughs> and uh, it's it's in a meat warehouse, which is which is sort of a, the traditional place that gay clubs were um, in big cities, and uh, they're just they're just having this ball and they're having so much fun, and it's almost like this the dinner scene in Freaks where they're. <laughs> Where where it's it's just like this weird insular little community, and then Sarah Jessica Parker plays the one person on the outside looking in, just horrified at everything. Yeah, um, 
and I never really picked up on the. I picked up they were outsiders. I never really picked up because it's not explicitly stated before that they that it's kind of in a gay thing. It's not just a weirdos hmm. thing. It's it's sort of a movie about repressed, you know, homosexuals in fifties Hollywood. Um, well, that's an interesting look. Yeah, approach. yeah. Well, I think definitely. I mean, maybe Edward was like the John Waters of his time, where he would sort of recruit, you know... Well, yeah, you totally get that feel where he's drawing from the same pool of people who are with him, not because they love his movies, but they love him. And Yeah, I mean, it's a, ce- it's a celebration of weirdness and eccentricity, and, you know, if if you're an outsider, you you will still be embraced, hey, and you have a place to go. Which, again... And it sort of also, you know, dives into... Did we lose Steven? Hey, I'm back. back. Okay. Oh, that was odd. That's fine. Anyway, go ahead, Jim. Um, well, I mean, I was just saying it's it, it sort of feeds into the DIY filmmaking community where they all have a passion for something. They may not even be specifically as crazy about film uh-huh. as Ed Wood is, but because of his infectiousness, it's sort of they all sort of come together and decide. Yeah, we can have this little group and have a project together, and that's empowering. Could, yeah, and that that's inspiring to see people and, struggle against all odds to put their art out there, even if it's not of high quality. And this is again, this is quintessential Tim Burton. Right. Um, this is what so many of his movies are about: are about outsiders that no one understands. Um, and I think what actually gets him mocked a lot is because he hits that button so much. But And this is one of the few movies where he did it where it didn't feel, like, sorry for itself. I feel like Ed, I feel like yeah. Edward Scissorhands is very much, like, just, oh, no one understands you because they're all normal and you're different. And they don't, you know? And um, It's not so much pointing fingers. It's, like, again, like, uh, you read you know, interviews with Tim Burton about Ed Wood and he's saying, you know, I did it from the perspective of Ed Wood that it's, yes, it is a very sympathetic movie because it's going through the mindset of like Ed Wood never would quit. Right. So why should Mm -hmm. I quit? And, And, you know, so it doesn't feel so mopey or it doesn't feel mopey at all. It feels, you know, uplifting. It's a great movie about the fun and spirit of making movies and how that in turn, you know, leads to just an overall wonderful worldview. And, and I think I think like Ed Wood himself, he has this deliriousness about him because of movies and, and because of what it does to an audience. Absolutely. And and I think I think a lot of the times the I'm different and no one understands me it comes off as disingenuous because Tim Burton is a person who has found insane success in expressing these feelings. Hot topic. You know, no, just... I mean, even getting <laughs> yeah. beyond... I mean, I think Nightmare Before Christmas um, solidified his fan base uh, because yeah. I think that is a rare kids movie. I, I haven't seen it in a while. I can't really speak to its quality, but it's definitely a rare kids movie that is speaking directly to the kind of kids who feel different and weird. Um, right. There's definitely a whole generation of people and, just and that gaga is, over that. that is, yeah, no, totally. And that's the sort of thing that when you see it, when you're at that age and you've never seen anything like that, where every movie is so obsessed with, you know, do, giving these proper morals and making sure it's and it's all clean cut and sort of sanitized. When you see something like that, it's so liberating and exciting. And he's earned 
his fan ba- his diehard fan base now they're going to go and see Corpse Bride and they're going to go and see Alice in Wonderland and they're going to see other movies that are probably just crappy but because they look like they have the same kind of style as movies he did before they'll give them passing grades like the like the crowd that flocks to something like Rocky Horror Picture Show right. they feel like they belong in that setting also also I I think and any movie that sort of creates a community or a sense of camaraderie is, I think it's a good thing. Even yeah. if the movie is not spectacular, I still think it's good that people can find an outlet Absolutely. to get together. Um, and- now, I will say, he is probably the most successful director we've covered. He's had two movies, um, I believe, that didn't, that weren't big successes. This one, well, this was a critical success, yep. um, even though it, it didn't really do anything at the box office. And uh, Mars Attacks, his next one, um, which was a which was a flop. Um, even something like which is interesting. It's like post Edward Scissorhands, which I guess I feel like we just remember it as it's become such a cult hit that we don't think that you know he was of the time. And and Edward, you know, a movie about transvestites and sh- the worst filmmaker of all time isn't going to be a box office hit. That's a big surprise. Black and white as well. Yeah, black and white. Oh my gosh, black and white. That's, That's a, yeah. Um, it's a box office. Draw. <laughs> oh, but even yeah, even like even movies like Planet of the Apes, which is widely regarded as a huge disaster, that everyone's like, oh god, that planet. You don't want it to be like the Planet of the Apes remake. That movie made a lot of money, cause, mostly because it was a really weak summer in two thousand one. But mm-hmm. that was hugely successful. Um, so I, I feel like the I feel like some of his. Fa- I don't want to talk about his fan base too much because I think you should be able to separate a director from. The fan base, but I feel a lot of his fan base feel a little. They they pat themselves on the back a little too much for discovering someone who is one of the most commercially successful directors well, I, in Hollywood I think, history. Yeah. I think his first three movies, when they first came out, when I was younger and didn't know as much about film, I would have put Tim Burton in my top five favorite directors oh, based yeah. on you know the fantastical elements, his sense of humor, the sort of just weird out there. You know, almost like Joe Dante in a way, just sort of having this weird, quirky sensibility and employing it into his, you know, comedy. And, you know, it's, I will say one thing for the majority of Tim Burton's work completely imaginative, but not always engaging like it is here with Ed Wood. And a lot of that has to do with just the humanity that comes through. You know, like the relationship here between Ed Wood and Bella Gossi is amazing. It's so. It's even it's, it's it's three yes. three dimensional. Unlike I wanna, unlike the father and son relationship in Big Fish. I want to talk about Martin Landau in this movie. He's unbelievable, just perfect in every way. Here here is the sort of the thing that makes my jaw drop when I watch him perform. Something that almost never happens when you, when it comes to actors portraying real people, especially in biopics, yeah, or biopics or any movie, yeah, where you'll you'll often get a lot of cameos from actors playing other celebrities and stuff, like Andy Warhol or something. yeah, like <laughs> Andy Warhol's very David popular. Bowie as Andy Warhol, yeah. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing about Martin Landau that almost none of them achieve is he is both simultaneously a dead ringer. Both in voice and acting, in look for Bella Lugosi, um, and he feels like a complete character. And you usually have to go with one or the other, where they're yeah. like sort of a caricature. Um, you know, like uh, I think Midnight in Paris has a lot of that, where the the the, char- the real people are portrayed as a lot more broad and stuff. Or Which can work. Or you get something. I feel like Capote, 
Uh, like it's so much of it is watching Philip Seymour Hoffman transform, do an impression. Yeah. Transform himself and, and do an uncanny impression that like the actual character beats are kind of lost. Um, in yeah. It, Cause it's all about him replicating something as opposed to creating a character. Right. Where, and even if you've never, if you've never seen Bella Lugosi in your life, you would still get a sense of absolutely full dimensional character within Martin Landau's portrayal. And it's so hard to do, to portray him. When he's happy, when he when it, that that sly little grin and the laugh he gives when he when he uh, is talking about feeding his dogs after he gets dropped <laughs> off his house the first time, to when he's in like the depths of uh, of an opium binge or ether, yeah. morphine, 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 morphine. He's morphine. To morphine. Uh, yeah, methadone or something. Okay, yeah, yeah, it turned into methadone. Um, and uh, like when he's in that part, when he's that scene, which is I believe Jim's favorite oh. scene, where he's wrestling the rubber octopus. God. That just kills me. Everything about that scene kills me. It is so sad and so funny. Yeah. Um. At the at the same time, it's he is so cause <laughs> so many contrasting emotions. Yeah, because because we've seen in previous scenes just how old and fragile he is. Um, he's trying to maintain longevity and he wants to stay relevant, but here he is wrestling a giant octopus he, on a low budget movie. But he's trying to find he, a couple swigs of whiskey. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's trying to find grace. In Absolutely. his last mo- stage of life, and and the reason he's trying to, the reason he's even hasn't given up, and he's even in this is because he loves Edward, and it's yeah. and you feel that, and it's everything about their relationship um, comes down to this fine point, this scene where he's just waving rubber tentacles and pretending they're attacking him, and it it could easily come all across too broad or just too depressing, um, but no, it, there's a subtext behind just that scene alone yeah it's it rings just, true it's so perfect yeah um and i also i would say the uh the, the performance of bill lugosi stands in very strict contrast to the way orson wells is used later in the movie yeah <laughs> this is i mean you know they, they you know wikipedia and imdb list oh hey this movie costs more than all of Edward movies combined. Well, why is the ADR? I mean, Maurice LaMarche is a good voice actor, Futurama. Yeah. But the, the, the sound editors or the sound mixers, just that voice did not come from Vincent D'Onofrio. Hell it's no. so no. obvious. It's the one glaring flaw I feel like in this movie is that how horribly the, the mix was for that I know scene. That, yeah. I know they want why they wanted to put that scene in there to sort of equate what, Orson Welles was going through with Don Quixote and doing whatever he could to make a movie and have that be the impetus for Ed Wood saying, you know what, I'm going to just do what I can do and but, fuck and everyone that, else. And at the same time, that's Tim Burton pointing out that what you should respect is not that, that it's not that Orson Welles made uh, Citizen Kane. What you should respect is that he had the, the gall and the self-drive to right. do something that no one thought he could do and everyone doubted him. And I mean, he's, obviously, he's not equating their, what they achieved with it, but it's all about that drive, and and so, there's so much love and respect for that. Um, so I, it, the scene feels a little out of place compared to a lot of the movie, but um, it would belong in the Muppet movie. Yeah, but <laughs> I, again, it's it's the mixing. I feel like it's well, yeah. It's, the mix the mixing definitely gives it like this other feel, like it's like it might like it might just be in his head. You know what I mean? Yeah, when, yeah, which is something yeah. I actually considered is that because that doesn't really happen in real life. I assume. No, no, no. He never met Orson <laughs> Welles, and a lot of the things Orson Welles says um, aren't true. Like he wasn't brought on to 
touch of evil as a director. Uh, He was just an actor. And then like they, he eventually became a director. Um, But so like it's, it's all fantasy, but there's that. And then there's, but I think what sort of helps it not feel so weird and out of place is that it's after all of the Bela Lugosi part. mm -hmm. Um, And after the Bela Lugosi part, it's just straight up uh, fun filmmaking kind of stuff. And I feel like if we, if you went from, the Orson Welles thing, and he went back to Bela Lugosi, it would have been, like, horrible, because it would have just been like, wait, are we in this movie now, where he's befriended uh, over the, you know, uh, past his prime opium addict, or are we in the silly, fun part of the movie? Right. Um, so I think tonally it does work, even though it's kind of weird. Um, one other performance I want to talk about, he's not in a, a lot, but every moment he's on screen, I just was dying. Uh, Bill Murray. Yeah. <laughs> Easily one of my favorite roles he's ever done. He's pitch perfect. Just he does so much with so little. Um, when I was rewatching it, I was like, you know what? If it weren't for the the warehouse, the rat party, I think my favorite scene that Tim Burton never did would just be Bill Murray in the hallway coaching the <laughs> transvestites. Yeah, where it's just it's all done in one shot and you just keep, it keeps revealing more and more transvestites. And he's just like doing these riffs where he's just like complimenting girls on their shoes and stuff. And like, he's so funny. And then it's vintage Bill Murray. It's like, I, I think for the most part, a lot of people just have him do his thing. And like, I heard about that with him and Kingpin that there wasn't even really a character there. Yeah. That they just, you know, hired Bill Murray and said, you know what? Go nuts. Here's an outline. Do what you want. And he always brings that sense of, like, impro- improvisational fun to a role. And, like, just, just his little, you know, idiosyncrasies in this movie are really, really special. That scene at the, in the wrestling match where he... Again, this is the scene that, and again, clued me in that, oh, th- th- this is also sort of about the gay, you know, closeted gay community is that scene where um, Bill Murray is talking about how Ed Wood's movie touched him so much that he yeah. that he finally decided to stop living a lie. Like, there's this absurdity. But he never went through with it Well, in real well life. he couldn't. Well, because well, he, he went failed. to. Yeah. yeah. He said he went to Mexico and it was all. A, a but, botched job. Yeah. But there's like the absurdity yeah. that anything as horrible as Glenn or Glenda could move anyone in any way. Um, But he, again, just sells it so much where it could just. It could have just played on absurdity um, and just been silly, but he you really feel the emotion behind it and like and you, you feel the, sort of the pride and uh, you, yeah, and the baptism scene is wonderful as well. Yeah, <laughs> his reaction's priceless. Do you, do you accept Jesus Christ as your, your Lord and Savior? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. Oh man, every moment he's on. Actually, I did want to go back and watch Plan Nine from Outer Space. Just to see if he even looked anything like the person who... I'm pretty sure he did, yeah. Because... Mm-hmm. Plenty of Record Ridge. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I'm horrible with names, but yeah, yeah. Because I don't I didn't, I didn't remember if in the actual movie. I actually haven't seen Plan 9 for Outer Space, but I... I mean, is it is it strange as a... Is it strange to relate so much to Ed Wood and to feel that maybe that's a bad thing? But no, I don't know if it is. I don't know if I, it no, is. Well, number one, you're not relating to the real Ed Wood. Ed of course, Wood yeah, it's, was, it's a was fictionalized, a sh- sympathetic image. Right. Ed mm-hmm. Wood not really did not really care a lot about telling stories. You know, like they it, it it works a lot better when he's just optimistic and just so 
dumb and earnest that he thinks Bride of the Atom is good, but I don't really buy that that was Ed Wood's passion. And he said, I have a story to tell. Yeah, yeah, he keeps... Mike Starr's fun. But I mean, that just shows how, how good this movie is. Well, right. Mean, you really and that, believe it. Well, we were talking about earlier about like diverging from source material. I think what you need to do is find what the arc of the movie is, find what you're trying to say, and then just change whatever you need to change for that to work better. Um, and I think this is a perfect example of that. Where Because this isn't a documentary. It no. doesn't need to be 100% accurate. It needs to be engaging. And that's 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 to me is what's really important. Of course, I will say you have that luxury when you're doing a biopic about Ed Wood. Yeah. Now, does Spike Lee have that luxury when he's doing Malcolm X? No. <laughs> Spike Lee, you know, Spike Lee had the pressure of the whole black community. Uh, yeah, he, he, had, he, wrote, he wrote a diary. Um, I think Tim Burton was, did Malcolm X. That would. Be. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be like he would get it. He would get the conch. Uh, conch or conch? Uh, the uh, he'd get the pompadour. He'd he'd get the uh, the lie on his hair, um, and it would just like end up just sticking straight up. And um, <laughs> those suits would be even more crazy. Him the the suits that the zoot suits he runs around with Spike Lee in. Um, but uh, though there's a great I think it I think it was published. But Spike Lee like kept a diary during the production of Spike uh, during production of Malcolm X. And it's like an insane sort of thing getting that film made. Another mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, Don Quixote kind of quest that no one thought he could do. And pretty much what he said is like everyone in the black community, like all they had to say was, don't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's funny because when I, when I first saw Ed Wood, I wouldn't have thought of this movie as I'm watching it so many years later, but uh, eight and a half like, oh yeah! Be- when I first saw this, obviously when I was younger, I hadn't seen Eight and a Half, but just it almost feels like this is Burton's, you know, Fellini movie, and yeah, and that like he wants to obviously have his escapist entertainment and have it be fun and quirky and the kind of have the elements that you'd expect from a Tim Burton movie, but also sort of have it be this lively demonstration of telling of storytelling and the passion behind it and wanting not to compromise his um his artistic credibility or his integrity absolutely because you can like the the going back and we're looking at tim burton's filmography like in a world before tim burton in a world yeah <laughs> before tim burton um no in a world before tim burton the idea that he went through the studio system and got something like peewee's big adventure made that he got Beetlejuice made Edward Scissorhands especially Edward Scissorhands is such a weird movie um yeah and so like aggressively strange well the, 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 the fact that he went from Pee Wee's Big Adventure to Beetlejuice to Batman yeah to this enormous property and they just said oh here you go have fun with it don't just go to town absolutely it's, yeah and it feels like a reflection of Burton himself yeah the story and I think that's that's a Where, yeah, really important just, thing. I, you you cannot say that Tim Burton does not have like a diehard commitment to his vision. You can you know there are very right. few movies you can look at and say oh C- Burton compromised there. As a matter of fact, I would probably say a lot of the problem with a lot of his movies yeah is that there he isn't doesn't that. compromise yeah but and, it, and it's and it's the same with like I I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of David Lynch mm-hmm. for that very reason he doesn't compromise his vision it's totally fucked up and not always engaging that's for sure yeah <laughs> but 
I like his vision. I like I like what he has to say, and most of it's kind of dreamlike in quality. Sometimes Tim Burton's vision doesn't mesh with my um, taste, right? <laughs> in a simple way to say it, but. Um, what do you think of the actresses in this movie, by the way? Because some people, I don't, I'm not saying this is like a general criticism of that he doesn't really uh, write fully dimensional female characters. Well, I don't think he. Really, I don't think. I mean, number one, he didn't write the movie, right? But number or doesn't he didn't even write most of them. But number two, I don't think most of his movies have fully dimensional characters, um, of yeah. male or female. Uh, I thought but, I thought yeah. it was funny when Jer- Sarah Jessica Parker said she looked like a horse. Yeah, that's- <laughs> I, there was some weird moments in this movie, like that moment and the moment with the black and white joke with the dresses. Um, that kind of stood out, but um, mm. yeah, there were a little, know, little of, meta, like a kitschy joke that just sort of you know stops the narrative completely for a gag. But I mean, few and far between. But anyway, uh, no, yeah, sporadically and well placed. Um, I did. I, I always think when it, whenever there's like a joke where a, a a woman or a man is just like their joke is that they're ugly or they're fat or something, yeah. like and it's not make. I always think of what kind of conversation the director has with them, <laughs> like, like how like Sarah Jessica Parker wasn't a star. It wasn't Sex and the City hadn't happened yet, but she was an established actress, right? Um, who was not like, typecast as an ugly person, you know? No, she was always playing an attractive yeah. girlfriend and, of sorts, or a love interest. And there, and you're a, and when you're an actress in Hollywood, and so much is riding on your appearance, I, like, I've, I actually, like, gained a lot of respect for her just for being in a movie where someone points out her key physical flaw. Like, yeah. that's, that's guts. <laughs> right. Um. Totally. Yeah. Um. Uh, I think I think we're ready to talk about uh, the movie we're, we didn't enjoy so much. No, it's kind of sad but true that we have to transition into yeah. some. But, but that's why I like you guys' podcast. News. It's not just about you know gush. I mean, obviously the 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 Woody Allen podcast had a lot of gushing, but right. you know, still critical. But uh, I, you know, I like your guys' podcast because you're willing to talk about a, a movie or you know a whole director, Rob Zombie. I mean, that was your kickoff episode. The directors you don't like because yeah. Keeps the conversation a little bit more interesting if we're willing Absolutely. to be more critical um, of the people. And plus, we it's just admire. interesting to contrast, you know, his best movie with arguably one of his worst movies to see what went wrong. And let's do that. And sort of where his career went. And before we got into this, I will say again, totally respect Tim Burton because we're about to rip him apart. <laughs> yeah, no, I like I said, hold first, on to your butt. <laughs> his first few movies, and we'll get into his filmography obviously after. Um, his well, his next movie, you know, I will I will say that I'm a huge fan of a few of his movies so much to the point where it's like I wouldn't say I actively despise Tim Burton, no, but I do want to say I actively despise some of his movies, yes. and let's talk about one of them now. Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. I am Constable Ichabod Crane, sent from New York to investigate murder in Sleepy Hollow. How much of your superiors explained to you? Only that the three were slain in open ground, their heads severed from their bodies. Taken by the headless horseman, taken back to hell. He rode a giant black steed to look at him, Major Blackburn Cole. Even today, the western woods is a haunted place where brave men will not venture. 
Sleepy Hollow came out in 1999, right after the box office failure of Mars Attacks. And it seems with both films, Burton chose to pay tribute to some of the films of his youth, um, the rather sort of offbeat genre movies that inspired of him and maybe wouldn't seemed out of place in the era of Ed Wood himself. And Sleepy Hollow was considered an homage to the era of Hammer horror films, only kind of containing some of the more lazy nuances of a slasher movie, I would say. Once again, we have uh, Johnny Depp here as the leading man, and with this gothic tale, Burton chose to make Ichabod Crane a detective rather than a schoolteacher as he was in Washington Irving's novel, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And although Sleepy Hollow was a box office success, I'd say this represents kind of a turning point for Burton as his films take a turn for the worse. Absolutely. I would I I'm sorry. I would say that this is the movie where every and this is the reason I, I, I chose this movie because it has a lot of defenders. Um, even when I was po- uh, when I was when I was posting about it on Facebook, a lot of the my friends who are into movies go, "No, that's definitely one of his better ones." Um, and I, you know, I just started listing everything I had I saw wrong with it, and they were just still like, "No, it's still a lot of fun." And I think well, a lot of people defend this people movie. Have, you know, again. Subjectively, people can have fun. No, absolutely. But Um, but you know, we're we're more in tune to certain elements when watching movies. I think this sort of the reason, other reason I chose it is it exhibits every sort of flaw, (laughs) all of his flaws as a filmmaker, um, where he's he really is just a really bad storyteller, Um, (laughs) sloppy, very sloppy. He's clearly not interested. Um, except when he is, rarely, he's clearly not interested in characters and how they relate. He's not interested in making sure that plots unravel in a way that's satisfying to audiences, that they're well-paced. Um, he just gets wrapped up in how things look. And Yeah. I mean, he's gifted in that regard. Of course, yeah. He's certainly one of the most gifted. Costume, uh, creatures, art design, all that. I kind of wish he was just an art director. Like, he would be the kind of person people would call on, like, people call on H.R. Geiger to design stuff. Mm. Like, if people would be like, oh, this movie needs a Tim Burton touch, he, they would call on him, and if he... <laughs> he, I think, because... Okay, let's just let's get into Sleepy Hollow. Number one, number one way to not do a mystery um, is to, very upfront, let let the audience know more than the lead, the detective. Um, so we waste, yeah. we waste about 30 minutes of Ichabod Crane trying to prove that there is no headless horseman when the very first scene we clearly see there is. <laughs> um, there's, there's not the sense of he's unraveling something that's, law, that's sort of dark and sort of dark secrets of this quiet community because... We're you know, waiting for him to catch up. Yeah, we're waiting. Yeah. And I felt the That's ca- annoying. It's really annoying. Um, I feel like I feel like so much Hammer horror is devoted to just tone and building up atmosphere, and in that way, it is sort of like Hammer horror. And then there are these elaborate sets. He actually built that whole town from the ground up. Yeah, um, and that's I impressive. I, I, did you guys feel like the cinematography was just too cloudy? I don't know if it was. Oh well, this maybe is, it's just it was filmed. It was filmed entirely at Leavitson Studios in London. It was. All of it was a set, Fog. Mm-hmm. or almost all of it, except <laughs> well, for this the is... um, the weather or the uh, what is it called the uh, the end scene where the, the catches on or blows up. Yeah, the windmill. Uh, windmill. Yeah. Thank you. 
echoing the end of uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, um, well, here's the thing. Number one, I think it's a hideously ugly movie to look at because this is where this is where Tim Burton sort of... Um, I'm surprised by that. Well, this actually. is where Tim Burton fell in love with color correction, mm. where he just chokes the life out. Like, even though he built all these sets, because nothing looks real, it just feels fake. Like, he might yeah. as well have just done everything with CGI cause, because he color corrects everything within an inch of its life, so just no one has any color... When I was watching Edward Scissorhands, I was surprised to realize that Edward Scissorhands has a lot more color in his skin than most of the Tim Burton protagonists these days. <laughs> like, despite being locked away in a castle and being shut, like, he still actually looked like a human. And even though Edward Scissorhands is, um, the, it's sort of portrayal of the suburbs was this wild, um, sort of overdramatic uh, take on it, it still felt like real a real place. Whereas yeah. this never feels like a real functioning town, even though it's he built all these elaborate buildings well, and stuff. You have to imagine, if all these people are getting murdered in the town, why isn't anybody leaving? Everyone's sort of like, oh, well, yeah. that's some asshole we don't like, so I guess it's okay <laughs> if he gets killed. There's five, literally like 5% of our population gone every Decapitated. day. Decapitated. Yeah. Oh, okay. Number two, you know how you don't build up atmosphere in a movie? By having scene after After goddamn scene of decap, I think like twenty six people get decapitated in this movie, and it is shot the same way every time. Boring. It is (laughs) like I know a lot of people sort of like that that um, Tim Burton really ran with the R rating and made things gory, but it's a really boring kind of gory because it's just decapitation after decapitation after decapitation, and it's and it's like literally just like. Uh, like the whole movie is ten minutes of Johnny Depp asking questions and sort of wandering around. Then someone gets decapitated. Um, yeah, it's so repetitive. And then actually, Johnny Depp until the very end when he's on the chase and he like is running away from the headless horseman and from the uh, from the evil woman who's controlling the headless horseman. He doesn't do anything. The movie would have progressed the exact same if he wasn't there. Well, it's so weird because, like, his his performance to me seemed like a tonal shift. Because, like, he seems really melancholy and moody and... I mean, like, he's asking questions and doing what a detective does. And all of a sudden he acts, like, goofy and scared. Yeah, no! And that really was off-putting. <laughs> okay, like, no, I remember that, I, I saw that, this in the theater. There's that weird dichotomy with that performance where he's, like, supposed to be this inquisitive director but or detective and... And yet, at the same time, he's so frightened, and it's like, well, what is he? Like, is he <laughs> yeah. is he scared or is he not? Because he seems yes. clearly he's ready to go, and he's ready it's to investigate. So inconsistent. We open on him fishing a dead body out of the water and wanting to cut it open, but then when he finds a dead body in the forest and there's bugs crawling out, he's like, I guess he doesn't like spiders. And it's and it's like I don't know. I'm supposed to number one. It is horribly unfunny movie. They there are a couple moments where they try to add levity. With his just wild gesticulations and like him making oh my faces. god it's blood you know yeah like, like, like he, this is like everything I don't like about Johnny Depp when he's really not doing a good job performing yeah there's is in this quite movie. a there's quite a few later Burton movies where J- Johnny Depp sort of personifies what I don't like about yeah Johnny and Depp. again and again this is the beginning of that yeah the other the other thing about it is it's a pre-existing property that feels sort of like Tim Burton could kind of be kind of down his alley, but it's not anything he has any investment in. Right. Um, Including the love story, which 
No, he so doesn't. He doesn't bad. care about the love story. Um, he doesn't. There's like no. It's it's like the sloppiest thing where I couldn't tell what was going on at any point in the movie. I could not follow the mystery because none of the characters in the town are introduced. So when you find out, oh, they have a secret, you're like, literally, this is all Wait, I know is about. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, all I know about this character is that he has a secret and he has a white powdered wig. Like, that's all right. the character traits were given. Well, they're not it, fully it, realized. It's a, it's a bad version of Clue, but, like, <laughs> it, you know, from the very beginning, all the guys in the wigs are looking nervously around and, and they spend so much time focusing on the fact that they're looking nervously around that it's no mystery, you know? Yeah. It's, it's no mystery what these no. guys are up to. Um, and then when the sort of the twist does come, it's not anything that you could have possibly predicted. So it's it's not like an aha moment. It's like an oh, all right, wow, great. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, and again, yeah, wait, wait, you're like I don't even remember this character. Like, <laughs> and the funny thing is, the original story of the Legend of Sleepy Hollow is so Tim Burton, an outsider school teacher who looks sickly and pale and everyone sort of mocks him. Yep. And uh and so no one guy understands d- him and he's in love with the girl he can't like it's practically Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, and it's about a guy who's just trying to get some head. But it- <laughs> nice. you know. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Um gotta have one per episode. Yeah. And uh it's it could have been like it easily could have been. I don't know why. I guess because the studios were investing a lot of money, they like were nervous that that kind of story would be too boring. So they added a bunch of decapitations and bullshit like that. Uh, um, let's see other things people have liked. People have told me that they like the score, which I hated. I th- there's no dis- nothing distinguishing about yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. I just I'm just not a like. The more and more I watch horror movies, the more and more I'm like. Just cut the score out or make it less subtle. Don't put it so much in the forefront of more every subtle. action. Yeah, yeah. Right. More subtle, please. Um, and it's weird. The guy who wrote this movie, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, he did Seven, which is a script, you know what, I can admit it's flawed, but Fincher, you know, his what he adds to that movie is pretty great. Um, here, Tim Burton just sort of overwhelms any sense of story. I get, I kind of get the visuals. idea that they said, Hey, do, do a seven again. Cause it's, there's a lot of the, like, well, he's a detective, but there's like a lot of gruesome things happening. And yeah, like, and there's a mystery and it's got sort of a weird religious subtext. Number one. Okay. Should have been more like eight millimeter, <laughs> which was Andrew Kevin Walker's other movie. Yeah. Another thing I hate about, I don't hate about Tim Burton, but another thing that always annoys me about Tim Burton is he always takes that, like, you know, I, maybe you don't know because you became an atheist later in life, but like that sort of moment where you're 17 and you're first sort of realizing you don't believe in God and you just take every possible moment to be like, like people are just like, people are just like, did you see, uh, did you see Gilligan's Island? That was dumb. You're like, no, it's dumb. Christians. <laughs> <laughs> like that sort of it just goes out of your way to do really lame insults on like, that's what all of his movies have. They all have like one character who's like, "I'm a Christian and I'm crazy and dumb." Yeah, um, mm-hmm. or just the character in power. In this, in in this case, they gave Ichabod Crane a backstory that has literally no, zero weight. Yeah. Nothing adds to it. Nothing that you couldn't even make an argument that that adds anything to what's going on. They're not connected. Same anyway. with giving the Oompa Loompas a backstory for fuck's sake. <laughs> God, we can't it. even go into that. Take, no, that would be a whole other podcast. Uh, um, 
again, and you, you want to look at Planet of the Apes. He clearly he clearly isn't really interested in a story. He's just sort of interested in oh, that's kind of a neat premise. Yeah. Um, but once he accidentally has to move the story forward after he's set up the premise, like every time it just nothing happens. Well, I try, I mentioned earlier. I I, I feel like it, it becomes re- as repetitive as a slasher movie. Yes. I mean, he wants to pay tribute to Hammer, and it looks like a Hammer movie. Very much At like, times. very much like Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula. It has his the, version the, of that. The, the, the blood is bright red, which yeah. I love. I mm-hmm, love mm-hmm. bright red blood. I'm, that's one. Of, that's I forgot to mention this when we were talking about horror movies. One thing I hate about horror movies now is all the blood looks yeah. like crude oil. Like all the blood <laughs> is so dark, it looks like they're just they're you just cut open a squid or something. <laughs> Um, and the it's so our humanity, we're losing our humanity. Yeah, that's what it's oh, all about, man. man. Um, but uh, so you don't care about the mystery. The relationship between him, him and Christina Ricci is nothing. It's oh, I'm in love. Why? You're a stranger. It just feels completely by the numbers, and it's because because the main character's dull, because there's nothing interesting going on in the story, because all the color has been sucked out of it, because Tim Burton, like, I think at one point, um, Ichabod Crane takes out kind of, like, his um, his autopsy tools, and they're kind of steampunkish and weird. I think one actually, I think one is actually a reference to uh, Dead Ringers. Um, uh, one of the tools, in, one of the creepy tools in Dead Ringers looks exactly like the sort of the cl- insect claw that he used. To- yeah. I think it would, mm. if it's not a reference to Dead Ringers, it's a very striking similarity. But hmm. that's sort of the absolute limit of where Tim Burton's allowed to be imaginative in like one scene where he has kind of weird looking tools. Every other part, there's none of the Tim Burton imagination that sort of makes his other movies fun, even when they're even when they're sort of lackluster. I would say even Planet of the Apes had better makeup. It had more of interesting world building. Mm-hmm. Um, they both had similarly crappy stories, um, but. Yeah, I mean, this... did anyone did did you guys find it weird or maybe distracting? I don't know. Christopher Walken. <laughs> I, I just I was like, oh my god, it's Christopher Walken as the headless horseman. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. that's and it, and his and it, look was more comedic. Honestly, to me. <laughs> honestly, now that I think about it, would you think this is the beginning where Christopher Walken started getting stunt cast and everything? This could have been down, beginning of his downfall too. Oh shit! Um, let's see. This is ninety eight or ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay, this is 99. After this, he went on to be in Prophecy 3. Oh, he did Scotland PA after this. He's really good in that. But then he was in uh, Joe Dirt. He was in America's Sweethearts, where he was sort of doing the pool hall junkies, where he's doing the... Uh, He's good in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Uh, Really good. He's, I think he's actually pretty good in the rundown, despite the fact that's about okay. So that, yeah, I'm not going to yeah, blame yeah, yeah. I'm not going to blame Christopher Walken's career on this movie, no, but no, it's it's fine. But like, there's really no redeeming qualities. There's a part where he chops open a tree and it starts bleeding and it's gross, and I think squishy. Yeah, and it's and I think that's kind of neat. And I think Christopher Walken looks cool with his mouth full of sharpened teeth. I think that was <laughs> I think that might be another Tim Burton kind of touch. That he sharpened his teeth mm. and he looked kind of rah, and he's just roaring. I mean, he's in about five minutes. I've heard him listed as a main factor of why people like the movie, and he's in about for like ten minutes. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, all the all the action scenes are kind of poorly shot. They're not really exciting. Yeah, it's just. It's, I mean, the, the the chase scenes on top of the carriage rely on the gag of oh, the low hanging branch. Yeah, clearly <laughs> a downfall of everyone fighting on carriages. Right. Or any, yeah, and 
Um, though I will say he sort of pays tribute to his Disney roots. Um, my uh, my girlfriend's brother, who is autistic, he he get, he chooses to be obsessed with different things month to month. And for the past month, he's been obsessed with uh, the Disney movie Legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, and he watches that movie constantly. And there's a shot when Ichabod Crane's running from this headless horseman, and he gets hit by a branch, and he like flips over onto the headless horseman's horse. And they pretty much the exact same shots in this movie, so that was kind of a neat yeah. little tribute. Um, but well, I just find I just he find might be good at that. He might be good at make paying cinematic homage to things. Yeah, you know, and again, I I mean, if you want to just talk about God tell, it's, even God if tell you, a good story, if you even if you don't like any of Tim Burton's movies, I bet he has sent more people to see like the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari than every <laughs> film class ever combined. Like when, yeah, I, when I when I first watched that movie in a film class, I was like, "Hey, Tim Burton watched yeah. this." A yeah, lot. <laughs> and I don't think I, I I would I would bet like about fifty percent of the non film person kind of traffic that German expressionism gets is a direct result of Burton. Um, I'm sure a lot of people started reading. You know, a lot of sixteen year old girls started reading Edgar Allan Poe because <laughs> of Tim Burton. You know what I mean? Like it's. I think he does good. I think he is a net positive, but I do think Sleepy Hollow kind of encapsulates everything that he's been doing wrong because um, it just feels so perfunctory. Like, every, yeah. like he's really Standard. not invested in a lot of it. Um, I'd rather watch From Hell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that's a flawed movie, but I find that a little bit more interesting. Or I, I remember this movie that came out like in 2000 called Shadow of the Vampire. Did you oh ever see no! That? I own that. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, that's, that's what made movie. me got. That's what made me go see Nosferatu, and oh. I love Willem Dafoe in that movie. I'll eat her later. I, I have, you know, I have that director's. <laughs> have you seen that director's first movie, Begotten? No, I, yeah. I I've heard it. good things about it. I, I You've heard good it. things about it. Who the fuck are you talking to? It's the worst movie ever made. <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> okay, all right. Anyway, I know I've heard. I just I feel like Tim Burton now. He just takes properties. He just sprinkles a little bit of Burton dust on him, and uh, he counts the profits. <laughs> Part of little little, little magical fairy dust. And I think, I think Planet of the Apes is something he fell into that he didn't really Burtonize. That felt more compromised, which again probably why it was more interesting. Um, uh, I, I was that's part of the reason I like Batman more than Batman Returns is because Batman feels like a compromise between Gothy's kind of settings and pulp comic settings and. Well, actually, yeah, let's just get into the rest of his filmography. Yeah, we totally should. All right, cool. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I'm first, excited about the first one. Have you, wait, have you, well, Stephen, have you seen Frank and Weenie? I haven't. Uh, no, yes, I, have, I, have, Frank I haven't and, either. have seen Frank and Weenie, and I thought it was, uh, I mean, it's been a while, but I mean, I really loved it at the time. I thought it was very heartwarming, and I mean, I, I wonder why they feel the need to remake it. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's doing it is? as an animated. Nightmare Before Christmas style thing. Oh, I mean, boy. I don't know. It was, it was cute. It was charming. It low budget. It, it worked well for what it was. Um, well, um, Vincent. Um, I haven't seen Vincent. You haven't. Well, I, no, I'll, I haven't. I'll put a link on the the blog because it's on YouTube. In its entirety. It is a wonderful, really touching story. Again, it's not. It's about a boy who doesn't fit in, but it's not explicitly about that. Like it doesn't. It's not just about how no one understands him. It's it's expressed through love. It's not expressed through how much he hates his normal parents in the suburbs and all that. It's expressed how much he loves Vincent Price. 
And it's very personal. The Chiodo brothers, who did uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, they did all the oh, animating oh, on wow. it. That was his first clay animated sort of thing. That's got to be awesome. It's delightful. And also, there was a while where, and again, maybe because I'm obsessed with the topic, I thought Vincent Price was gay. Because I, I saw Doctor Gold, I saw Doctor Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine, which is one of the, like one of those campy, uh, sex comedies from the mid '60s that he would do, yeah. and he so flamboyant in that movie. Um, apparently, he's been married several times and is not gay, but I thought he was gay. And then when I saw Vincent, I I I took that. Um, it wasn't a boy about who wanted to be Vincent Price. It was a boy who was gay, and I was like, oh, that adds a different dimension. Mm-hmm. So if you want to will, so I'm just saying. I highly recommend willfully misreading. <laughs> I want to watch some Vincent Price I'm movies. Excited. I really do. Vincent Price uh, is great. I know. I've, I love his persona. I love what he brings to his a voice. movie. Yeah. Uh, Cor- I like his Corman movies the most. Right. Um, Mask of Red Death is probably yes. one of my favorite horror movies ever. I've seen that, and that's fucking great. Um, I'm not so much a fan of the more swaky- I'm a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe. I never really sort of expressed that, but I've always oh, really? liked his work. Yeah. I'm I I find it hard to get into. I like I like the stories, but when I actually sit down and read them, I'm, I'm it's hard for me to get into them. Mm. Um. Anyway, I got so into what I was first, you guys, I have to ask: Have you guys? I uh, went to the uh, the Tim Burton exhibit in New York a few years ago. They oh, showed wow. an early film he did for the Disney Channel. It was Hansel and Gretel, but nice. it was with an all Japanese cast. Hmm. And the the witch was played by a Japanese man, and all the sets were painted on, you know, very German expressionist. Right. And I just thought it was the most surreal thing. He, he I mean, I feel like you know, in a very genuine, low budget kind of way. But I thought it was really fun. I don't know if you guys have heard anything about this. About I've, this. I've never even heard mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was for I the bet, Disney Channel. It was I bet a it's Han- on Hansel YouTube. And Gretel. I, I'll, I'll look on YouTube. I'll maybe put that on the blog if I can find it. Um. Anyway, first feature film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Love it. Love it. Again, (laughs) very very imaginative, um, a lot of fun. I do not like it because I find Pee-wee Herman to be one of the most annoying characters ever. Like, the tick of him laughing constantly. (laughs) Like, like, you you know how people talk about Freddy Got Fingered? Like, it's this big practical joke on anyone who's watching it because it's just so absurd and makes no sense. We talked about this the last episode. Okay, because the, la- <laughs> the first first 15 minutes of Pee-wee's Big Adventure when I first saw it, I was thinking that exact same thing. Like, this is the dumbest, weirdest, like, there's no point. We're just like, brush, 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 brush. <laughs> and like, he's just, oh, Mr. T, and he's talking to a cereal. Like, it's, it's the dumbest shit I've ever seen. And again, it's a very specific sense of humor. If you're in tune to that... It's totally committed to it, so it's great. Even when somebody just impersonates it really badly, it makes me laugh. (laughs) Tequila. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, His next movie is Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. I like Beetlejuice. It's just fun. It's just fun. I I I love Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's a lot of fun. I think Alec Baldwin. um, I'm not too crazy about the way it ends at all. I just think it's lame. I just think it's lame. I I I kind of like it. It is is lame. I'm not going to deny it's lame, but I kind of like... Like I I I kind of like the idea that movies can be gothy without being sad or self-loathing, mm-hmm. you know. And I felt like that's something like later movies he did, like Corpse Bride or even Edward Scissorhands, didn't do well. Um, whereas I think I think Beetlejuice really finds the fun in it. 
with the I really love the, the Calypso, fan, the fantasy elements mixed with the gothic, the elements. Calypso yeah. and the and the waiting room of the undead. Where oh, I won't just... deny that there's some excruciating, excruciatingly funny stuff in this movie. I mean, that dance with the Harry Belafonte song is that, brilliant, and then and the whole Danny Elfman score is brilliant. Oh God, yeah. Uh, it's I mean, it's very derivative of a lot of Oingo Boingo. Like I but said, very imaginative. There wasn't yeah. a movie like this at the time, and I, it really captured my imagination. Uh, yeah, Remember, yeah. When I was younger, I was like, "Oh, maybe it'd be cool to meet Beetlejuice." No, what the fuck? <laughs> um, he's, he's a dick. <laughs> uh, so his was his next movie Batman? Yes, it was yes. the the next year after. And I was really excited when this came out, and I loved it as a kid. I can never, ever be objective about this. I had this on videotape uh, as a kid, and I watched it 30 million times. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't I be objective about it. I wore the shirt and everything. I've, I've had long discussions, especially after Dark Knight came out, about what the best Batman movie is, and who the best Bruce Wayne is, who the best Batman is. And I just keep saying, Batman, Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton is Batman. Like, across the board, this is my favorite everything, and People have pointed out, well, the story doesn't make sense, and Robert Wool's annoying, and <laughs> I think Robert Wool's really funny in it. Yeah, uh, I, I have fuck. to be on the other side of the camp, Patrick, yeah. because but but you had a much different experience. For me, yeah, I saw Nolan's universe of Batman first. Oh, really? I somehow I somehow missed the <laughs> Tim Burton Batman train, and so to me, with the Prince and Jack Nicholson's performance, it just. I have to see it again. I feel like I could watch it again now and appreciate it more. But after seeing Dark Knight and then watching Tim Burton's Batman <laughs> immediately right after. That'd be a little I jarring. I just felt like I was getting McDonald's after the steak dinner of, of the Dark Knight. Well, but I, I don't know if it's going to be that way if I see it again. Well, okay. Well, number one, I'm not a big superhero movie person. So I know people will disagree with me. My fav- like I would say my three favorite superhero movies um, are Batman 1989, uh, Superman 3, and Tank Girl. So you kind of see, like, I prefer the approach that's silly because I think superheroes are inherently silly. I love Dark Knight. I really like, I like Batman Begins, but I love Dark Knight. But I don't think that Nolan's approach is inherently the best way to approach a character like Batman. Like the scenes where it's like playing like heat and they're on top of a rooftop and Harvey Dent and uh, Commissioner Gordon are talking and the camera's spinning around. There's like just a fucking guy in a dressed as a bat like it's ridiculous and i feel we're like gonna t- we're gonna have a long discussion for yeah the christopher nolan we're episode. Be doing, i feel like that's not i feel like he i mean he committed to the approach and i felt like he made it work best but i feel like the best way to approach batman is more the um uh, is more the way tim burton did just give me spider-man too <laughs> it, it's it's where you know you find this approach you know or this a medium ground between adam west and christian bale yeah yeah where is where is that middle ground maybe it's michael keaton i i would think so um, i mean i'm a big fan of both of these of both of burton's batman movies and most people would agree that batman returns is weaker than the first i see i've, I've encountered the opposite like on message boards on shut and stuff <laughs> everyone seems to think returns is superior um, I don't, I don't, number one, I don't think the villains are nearly as interesting. Uh, I would I th- say that about the penguin. I don't think Catwoman's really that interesting. I don't get, I like her. What's her, what's her deal? Like, what's her motivator? I don't what's know. What's her motivation? To, to, to fucking, you know. She's a cat. She's a cat. Seek vengeance against Christopher Walken. I own a cat. Cats don't seek shit. (laughs) If she was really (laughs) Catwoman, she would just be like, "Oh, I'm a cat now," and then just sort of lie around for thirty hours. Maybe if you fell out of a, you know, 
a skyscraper and died and a bunch of cats started biting you and maybe you'd feel differently. No, well, number one, I will say... The, the cat gave her nine lives. What she, I love about she could the, do anything she wants. What I love about the original Batman is that the aesthetic mixes his gothic sort of thing with a more pulpy comic feel. Like, my one of my favorite scenes in any movie is, again, this is probably just nostalgia, but is the shootout in the chemical plant. I love just... Yeah. I love how all the cops are wearing, like, police hats and all of the gangsters are wearing fedoras and how they all have revolvers and uh, how everything just sounds like pew, 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 and, like, there's ricochets and smoke everywhere. Like, it totally feels like the end of, like, white heat or something. Batman succeeds. Dick Tracy fails. Yeah. No, totally. That's that's a great example, because I think... I think Number one, Dick Tracy. You want to talk about movies where people are trying to ride the Tim Burton train? Yeah, yeah. Talk about style over substance, um, and you know, color and all that. But Batman Returns just goes full goth. I don't like the vi- the villains as much. <sighs> and when you take away the the performance of Jack Nicholson, who I think is so funny and great, um, and then I and then when you take away the the aesthetic, which I love so much, it's. I'm left with a story that's not well told. And Maybe I have a thing for leather dominatrix. There you go. Okay, that's your thing. That's your aesthetic. Maybe. Maybe. This, this is one of the few Tim Burton movies I actually haven't seen. But oh, okay. I, I feel like I really need to see it. But he didn't did did make this, a... You might true? like it. It's not nearly as 80s. Um, I think a lot of the problems you'd have yeah. with Batman... Number one, I, people criticize the Prince soundtrack in Batman. Prince only exists in the movie as Joker's theme music, which works perfectly. There's no scenes... Like every time Prince shows up, it's just Joker. Um, so uh, yeah, he, I, he made a movie in between the two Batman movies. Oh no, yeah, he made Edward Scissorhands, which I think yeah. we've touched on a lot. Yeah, I like it. I don't love it. I I think it's fine. I it's yeah, it's fine. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I like it visually, especially it's very. It's there's good very score. very funny moments. Yeah, um, I find Timber. I know. I mean, I'm sorry. I find Johnny Depp really annoying in it. Um, yeah. I think I find he's like just so Too passive, such, such an uninteresting character. Um, and again, it's got that Tim Burton problem where he loves the design. He loves the look and he loves the premise, but he doesn't know how to pace, pace the story and have yeah. like, like Edward Scissorhands feels like it could have been a short film, like it could have been 30 minutes and it would have been perfect. But as like, I think it's, I think it's like 110 minutes. I think it's almost two hours. It just drags on and on of scene after scene of mm-hmm. sort of the same sort of, oh, I mean, I'm in the suburbs, but I'm dressed in leather and I have scissors for hands. Yeah. I would be sad, <laughs> though, a, if I couldn't a hold one on the writer. To it that's almost an- annoying or yeah. something. Yeah, I'll, I, will, I would agree there. Um, there's parts of it where it's pitch perfect, and then there's parts of it where it goes over um, into the gross side. And I notice I'm in the camp that doesn't find overly precious things to be annoying. No, you are definitely not. You're definitely yeah. not that camp. Yeah, I know. That would be that would be a key difference between me and you. Which um, is, it's good for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It would um, be good for a, a director in the future. No pun intended. Joan of Arcadia. Joan of Arcadia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Ed, 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 what did we discuss? Mars Attacks, which I have not seen the longest time. I couldn't. Re- I remember thinking I don't it was remember dumb. Much about it, yeah, it's dumb. I love. I do love. I have. I do watch like uh, the trailer for it. I love the special effects. Still, I think the best kind of special effects are the ones that are stylized enough. Like that's why you can go back and watch Ghostbusters and be like, and not be like, oh, that's that's so fake because it looked fake when it came out. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, Sarah Jessica Parker's head on a dog. Or something. Oh yeah, there is that, and then like Pierce Brosnan's in it, so you know uh, Pierce Brosnan's head on a dog, or yeah, so, somebody's finger. Martin Short's finger gets bitten off by an alien, and 
country. Like it, there's just so many random things. It's almost like you watched four different movies. Yeah, you know, just sort of spliced together. I, again, he, he's, he's having fun, but it's it's not in service of anything. It's maybe fun for him, but not for right. Us. He's having fun. Um, and I, again, I respect that. After Mars attacks, he came back with. Sleepy Hollow, which we yeah, talked about. We got bad news coming, folks. Planet of the Apes. You know, I kind of enjoyed it. I don't know. Marky Mark. Again, Come on. Again, after <laughs> so the... Another after stoic the, Marky Mark performance? I, I, I noticed this like, time and time again after watching uh, Tim Burton movies. First 15 minutes, I'm like, you know what? I don't know why I don't like Tim Burton more. He's really good. Like, this is really fun. And then like after 15 minutes, once the premise has been set and nothing happens, like... Like, like Planet of the Apes is just people walking with sort of no direction, and the, it's it's yeah. so boring. I love the design. The only person who really comes out of Planet of the Apes great is Rick Baker, right? Because the makeup is amazing. Yeah. yeah, Paul Giamatti is orangutan, and uh, just Tim, everyone. Tim looks Roth great. is it, really good. Is this me or a bit after? I mean, seeing uh, Planet of the Apes, you know, two thousand one when I was. 12 or something, I cannot help but think of Helena Bonham Carter as anything but an ape. <laughs> I, I, just, I just, I still see her, her chimp makeup and I just, when it, every time I see her from now on, I just, I just feel like that's, uh, I, I don't know. It's, I it's see her strange. as Marla Singer and everything. I, 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 I see her as Helena Bonham Carter and everything. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I have, I feel of arguments with my girlfriend daily because my girlfriend finds Helena Bonham Carter so annoying that I end up sticking up for her more than I really would uh, <laughs> in any other situation. Cause you just, um, uh, she, yeah, I'm not I, crazy I was, about I, Planet I, of the Apes. The ending of Planet of the Apes is, doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I think it, I think it's doesn't, I, if you had to make, do something that doesn't make sense, I kind of like that. It's kind of crazy. And, Monkeys in cop costumes. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Um, uh, and the ape, ape, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham. Um, <laughs> I didn't go a shit. I will for this say, yeah, I'll, about Helena Bonham Carter in that movie. I've never been more uncomfortable about being sexually attracted to a monkey. Because <laughs> normally I'm sexually attracted to a monkey. I just go with it. There's right. something about being sexually attracted this time to that. It was, yeah, it was yeah, awkward. I mean, I just, I just, I just get some lotion. I put on every which way but loose. And Project I just, X. I just go to town on myself. You got to go see Project <laughs> Nim. <laughs> I bet you jerk off to Project okay, Nim. Here's something: a movie that everyone considers this his most quote-unquote adult movie or which i i think is actually a pretty bad movie um it's big fish i don't think it's it, a bad it, movie it, it, I, it felt like a change of pace because johnny depp wasn't in it yeah so no it's it definitely nice. changed the pace every moment uh, and it's it's it, it's got two things go for it that are great going for it it's got ewan mcgregor he's basically ed wood in it um it's the same kind of super hyper optimistic character Except it's such a fantasy that the world doesn't acknowledge that he's too optimistic. But every every moment, Ewan McGregor's on screen, it's great, and it's got some of Tim Burton's most imaginative art design. And yes, it's fun to watch Tim Burton's mind go because I I really dig his aesthetic a lot. And it's and there's just so many moments in that movie where I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's really clever. Uh, again, he didn't write it, but it's he brings it to life and he makes it a he makes these bizarre things all seem like part of one world here's the my the father's son relationship isn't yeah. as fully realized and um, there's about 15 minutes of it yeah <laughs> in the in this two-hour movie there's about 15 minutes between the father and the well, son this came out 
after his own father passed away and he wanted to it, it feels personal but then again it feels no, detached it because like he obviously had if he, if Edward Scissorhands was a reflection of his father issues then maybe that sort of bled into Big Fish not ever becoming fully dimensional well you know he you know here's the thing Big Fish is about a son like forgiving his father I don't think Tim Burton ever forgave his father that might be true uh, but and it's not our place to psychoanalyze not, no, Tim no. Burton. But here's the thing. Uh, he is not interested in the father and son relationship. There's barely anything in there. Um, number number two, the problem with the movie is the whole fantasy story, the ongoing fantasy story about his father does not really add up to anything that reflects meaningfully on their relationship. It is just pure fantasy. Like what is what's the point of his? I mean, I if I if someone has a better explanation for how all these stories of him being in World War II and him seeing his death in a witch's eye, like of all these things, meaning something other than just being fantastical stories, I'd love to hear it because I I don't There's nothing see wrong it. with them just being fantastical stories. Well, there is if tall you tales. Are, no, there is if you're supposedly building this on a backbone of a relationship of a father and son. There, there's yeah, no where, backbone Where does this here. take you emotionally? Where, how, what, yeah, what's the point of filling this person's head with fantasies this, when you're trying to connect with them? This, and you don't get a sense that you know his... It's not like you ever get a sense of what the reality was behind all the stories. Like, I feel like a movie where if you could tell what the reality was, um, then you would... Then you could see how it actually meant emotionally to him, but they're so outlandish and so fantastical. It doesn't seem to have any bearing on anyone's life. I hear what you're saying, but you're probably wrong. Okay, well, tell me then. (laughs) What? This is not a movie I can accurately, like, defend because of how it it ends. Like, my, my criticisms of this movie are... Are there, and I didn't rewatch it to be able to right now say what they are specifically. But at the time I saw it, this was literally a year after my dad passed. Right. So any movie with right. a father and son no, this relationship, is a, this is even issue. if it's a weak movie, and that's fine. <laughs> and I've I've heard similar people having similar reactions, and that that has to count for something, right? But at the same time, I don't think it makes it a good movie. And I think you're probably right, but I'm in my own mind, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And again, again, if the, 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 you know, the line has been drawn in the sand. Yeah. Um, after Big Fish, he decided to just give up uh, and did Charlie <laughs> and the give Chocolate up all Factory. Hope. Um, uh, I will say I like Charlie a lot. The kid who plays Charlie in this movie, I thought he was charming. Yeah. I and think that's one of the few things I liked about the music's it. music's horrible. Did Danny Elfman do I the can't music? Beli- yeah. I can't believe the music horrible. in this movie. It is. It was. Like, I don't know what the fuck they were. thinking. It wasn't just bo- like. You, and this is a movie I will get pissed off about. Yeah, like Willy Wonka. It's coming back. I apologize again for all the noise. Uh, Willy Wonka: The Chocolate Factory. It's it's funny because everyone I've ever spoken to who's like watched that as a kid on tape, they Ugh. always fast forward past the Cheer Up Charlie scene. Yep. Because it's so superfluous and the song's boring. I did. Yeah, everyone does. And it's such a funny thing that kind of unites all kids is they all love that movie and they all fast forward past that scene. Um, but Johnny Depp is horrible. No, he's horrible. Uh, he's trying to do, I think, Michael Jackson. I don't yeah, know what, yeah, the, what the hell Jackson. he's doing. And his, the, defen- a- his defense was like, well, but Michael Jackson loves children. Willy Wonka doesn't. <laughs> and that was, that was his defense when people were saying that. And again, um, again, any kind of meaning you can get from his choked by daddy issues. 
Yeah, Christopher Lee is the evil dentist dad. Don't give Mike Myers a backstory. Yeah. And don't give Willy... The thing about Willy Wonka that made it so great, obviously, was Gene Wilder's performance. And the one thing... There was mystery. Yeah. But you wondered why... At the end, he was like... Gene Wilder was like, wait, he was such a sweet guy and all this candy and blah, blah, blah. And like, oh my God, he's such an asshole. Right. Why? And that's you the know, thing. It's like he said he was compelling. only going to he was only going to take this role. Gene Wilder said he was only going to take the role if he could walk out and con the entire crowd at the very beginning with the cane. Like he said, I need to do this scene to represent sort of an ambiguity of the character. And like and having an that trustworthy. Yeah, untrustworthy. Right. And he plays that card throughout the entire movie. Johnny Depp doesn't add any nuance like that to this role. Just it's a caricature. It's not interesting. I'm I just I have such a love for the original that watching this kind of made me mad. Also, this is probably the beginning. Big Fish had a lot of CGI, but it had a lot of practical stuff. Um, Charlie Chong Effect is probably the beginning where he just started CGIing everything. Yeah, yeah. it's almost too colorful and vivid in well, ways. It's, it's just it has no weight. Nothing has any weight. I like the squirrels. That has, that <laughs> seems. You know what really creeped me out and everyone else in the theater during that scene. Um, it was almost like Evil Dead, where mm. the squirrels are prying her legs apart, except it's a fucking eight-year-old girl. Yeah. And the squirrels are like, and she's wearing a dress, and they're opening her legs. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, they're going to crawl in her! Like, it was... Right. And again, we were talking about adaptations. <laughs> Only in the David Cronenberg version. Yeah. Adaptations, you know, it's like, the Roald Dahl family gave Tim Burton the approval, they love this version, they hate Willy Wonka. And the Chocolate Factory, well, the Steve, family. Well, but Stephen like, King hates The Shining. He's wrong. Right. And they're yeah. wrong. I know. <laughs> like, I agree. Let's move on. Yeah, um, Corpse Bride, which I did watch, no redeeming values. Never at all. saw it. Never it, saw it's, it. It's a strange movie because basically, the I mean, you know, whatever you want to say about messages of movies and how if you agree with them or not, but I feel like the message of the movie is death is much better than life. Really. Yeah. <laughs> de- <laughs> de- de- the, the, you know, the underground the or death is like Mardi Gras. It's colorful, bright, and there's a party and there's horn players walking down the street yeah. and booze and it's it's lovely. And and when you're alive, it's dreary. It's like Sleepy Hollow. Life, you know, life above ground in Corpse Bride is Sleepy Hollow. It's just gray and yeah. fog. Oh my god, it is the ugliest animated movie I've ever seen. It is so everything is just blue and gross, and it, it is so. Ugly and the, I mean, again, I love the character design with the weird shaped heads and everything. It's <laughs> but it's it's so boring. There's not a single part that's funny. All the music is really horrible. Um, like the story makes no sense and doesn't really go anywhere. It's again, it was just like, hey, do you want to do another clay animated movie? Yeah, I have these drawings in a notebook. All right, let's get a let's get it greenlit and fast track it. You know, <laughs> I um, did like Coraline. Although I don't, he, I know he, he didn't had nothing direct, to do with it. I know he didn't direct it or nothing. It was just Henry Selleck, right? The guy who directed yeah, Night Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, which, I was surprised. I, again, another movie I haven't seen in forever, so I couldn't really comment on it. But yeah, I'm sure that movie, that movie obviously has more merit than Corpse Bride. Mm-hmm. Um, Corpse Bride has oh, so so horrible. Sweeney Todd, um, I kind of liked it, and then I saw it, and, and then I heard the musical, and I hated it. Because the, the the songs are so great, and in the movie they're all sung by actors who can't sing, and it's right. It's like I I saw the movie and I liked it and I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun and gory. Again, sure. all the colors I, I did like it too. All I the did. color is sucked out of everything. Um, the the it's story is kind of boring, but 
I did like that it was that it, and and again this, a lot of the city seems to be created by CGI. Yeah, um, it's unfortunate. But I enjoyed parts of it. But then I heard the musical, and I was like, "Oh my god, this music is amazing!" Stephen Sondheim, you know, one of my favorite songwriters, he's fucking incredible. I love this, and it all comes to life. And the best number in the whole musical got cut out. Or it didn't get cut out of the movie. They didn't film it. Um, yeah, they, it, they they I, cut out all of the class struggle of the movie, and they made it a revenge story, which is like a thousand times less interesting. Mm-hmm. It would have been interesting if this would have not been a musical. I wonder what that would have been like. I, no, I don't think because I think it, it the, wouldn't have been interesting at all. I think I mean, the, the musical the... I gave them at, gave them license to be more operatic. Um, I think otherwise it would be a lot more like Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Alice then, uh, in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, which I've not seen. I will never see I, Alice I walked in Wonderland. Out of it. I, I walked out of the theater. I don't walk out of many movies. I, there, there's a moment, I think it's maybe even like only 20 minutes in where a horse starts talking and I'm just like, (laughs) oh my God, I'm out. I I can't do this anymore. Tim Burton. Like I just, no Mr. Ed for you. I I just, no, I, I like literally, and there's like a moment in the, again, it's in the very beginning. Again, I haven't seen the rest of the movie where like a, the mouse like takes out the eyeball of this evil cat and it's just, it seems so graphic and but like fake because it's all CGI and I, you know for people who've seen the entire movie, the whole movie is CGI. I I, I mean it's whatever whatever you want to say yeah. about CGI, it, but uh, I don't it looks know. like I just, Tim. I was out. I'm out. I look, tapped out of the ring. Yeah, I'm gone. Yeah. I was out when I saw the trailer. I mean, I was just like, Ugh. it looks more like more of Johnny Depp being the most irritating person on earth. And it's too bad. I like the actress that plays Alice. I think she's got. Potential. I wanted to see Anne Hathaway though, I, which was. Mm. Yeah, well, if you get if you can't even see her behind all the CGI and stuff, um, yeah. the makeup. Yeah, sorry, we don't have a. Uh, now I'm... his next movie coming out next year is Dark Shadows, and it is uh... it is apparently just going to be sort of a straight ahead soap. Um, it's a which is of course an adaptation of a very popular long running soap opera, which began its life as just a normal soap opera. How's he going to condense that into one movie? Well, it, they'll just take one arc or something. It'll, mm. but um. And when it was about to be canceled, out of fear, the creator just put monsters and vampires in it, and it became a huge success. Now, I bring this up because... Um, Ooh, Eva Green. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, well, I guess Johnny Depp starring. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, it feels and, uh, like a Bonham Carter. It feels hmm. even like a little late for the vampire craze. Is Jackie Hurl Haley going to play another pedophile? I'm sure. Willie Loomis. Well, what Loomis. Kind of, how can your hey, name... Christopher Lee has a cameo. <laughs> How can your name be Willie and you not be a pedophile? That's my question. Anyway, um, I want to direct our listeners to an amazing article uh, written by my friend who I mentioned earlier, Phil, uh, who, luck if, if if luck be a lady tonight, uh, <laughs> if, uh, he'll he'll be on the podcast sometime in October to discuss John Carpenter. Not, not 100%. But anyway, he wrote an amazing article for the website uh, Badass Digest called um, How Tim Burton's Dark Shadows Could Be Great. And then in parentheses, but won't be. And <laughs> the story about the cast of Dark Shadows is Ed Wood, basically. Right. It is – it's this amazing kind of story where it's all these actors who they come to their end of the rope. They had what they thought were successful careers and now they're done and they're on this shitty soap opera that no <laughs> one likes and it's about to be canceled. And in a fit of uh, – a fit of like upset – uh, you know, in a panic, the creator throws a vampire in there 
and it becomes hugely successful. And all of these middle-aged actors start receiving just bags and bags of fan mail. And they don't... And there's like... Everyone is in love with the main vampire. And the actor who played him was gay. And it was like... Before anyone could even realize... Like, it was sort of like a Liberace thing where hmm. he had like tons and tons of women who just... Asking him to marry them and, you know... Wow. Um, and they all sort of found acceptance in life, uh, like a second wind and everything through these fan conventions. Um, Maybe they should do that with more contemporary soap operas now. Yeah. Just like throw a vampire on Young and the Restless. Those are, yeah, a lot of soap operas are dying out. That might Young be the, the way to go. Young and the Deathless. Yeah. Young and the Breathless. <laughs> yeah. That'd be <laughs> um, perfect. But, and then like through fan conventions, they sort of, you know, became immortal at a time when they thought they were, and it's and it there's all these other Isn't this different, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, no, it sounds like a little, it's a little bit like Galaxy Quest, but and <laughs> all of the stories, like all the different actors and stuff behind Dark Shadows, um, they all have sort of interesting stories. So I I urge everyone to read this article um, it, on Badass yeah, Digest. Yeah, put the link up. Yeah, yeah, I'll put the link up on the site. It's really great, and if and it's a totally Burton kind of thing where if he did it this way, it could be like a spiritual successor to Ed Wood, but. Instead, it's going to be just a shitty Tim Burton-y little vampire thing. Yeah, really quick, though. Um, we're not going to comment too much, but we want to acknowledge an email we got yes. um, defending Tim Burton. We want to hear your thoughts, and obviously, if you feel differently than we do, we want to hear it. Um, we got an email from Mark on, on how he feels about Tim Burton, and he thinks that the strength is that he... Um, makes films set in these surreal worlds with surreal characters, but these characters have real human struggles at their core. And he says to anyone who thinks Burton is a hack, I would recommend watching their his early films, which I agree with, for sure. Yeah. He's a master visual artist, um, and he, he you know some images in Nightmare Before Christmas have stuck with him, but he feels like a lot of film critics have taken a cynical attitude towards the director, and is being mocked quite a bit. And why do you think that might be? Well, again, uh, we, we've talked about this a lot, about how when you see these movies as a kid, that he makes the kind of movies for kids that no one else either has the guts to make or wants to make. Right. And if that speaks to you, it is a mind-opening experience. Um, the first time I saw uh, Beetlejuice, it completely just blew my mind because I'd never seen anything like it, and, you know, rarely since. But... Those human struggles you talk about, and again, this is mostly highlighted due to the fact that for the past, let's let's say a little over ten years, he's been making bad movies. Um, yeah, I don't see the human struggles. Well, well, the yeah. problem is those movies make you look back at the other movies and go, oh, because what used to be kind of special has mm-hmm. now just become it's evaporated. Has it's now become diluted. like it's now become an assembly line where he just. He, they, someone hands him a property. He dumps a dumps a, a jar of Tim Burton sauce on it, and then pushes it out. And then the next pro- property comes yeah. out. He dumps. I don't want to drink the Tim Burton yeah, milkshake yeah. anymore. So <laughs> when you go back and then you look at Edward Scissorhands, it is much more personal and a lot more human than a lot of his later movies. But at the same time, those human struggles aren't elaborated well, um, and they're not done. I don't think particularly well. Uh, Maybe Tim Burton needs to make a Midnight in Paris and. Have a comeback of sorts. I, I just I don't just know. not work with not work with Johnny Depp yes. or, or yes. Helena Bonham Carter. Johnny, yes. Johnny Depp or Danny Elfman. Yes, yeah. Go outside of your comfort zone. Compromise. 
at this, I mean, Alice in Wonderland worldwide made a billion dollars. So if there's any point where people are going to start telling Tim Burton, no, it isn't now. But I'm hoping eventually it, I mean, what used to be charming and endearing and very personal and interesting about his movies now just comes across as desperate. And like, like who is a 40 year old man who's happily married with kids who still thinks about, oh, the world doesn't understand... Who, by the way, one of the most successful... I Like I mentioned, one of the most successful filmmakers in Hollywood history who goes, oh, no one understands me and make, constantly makes those movies. Like, it doesn't, yeah. feel, it doesn't feel honest. So it's easy to be cynical about them. Yeah, and, and in defense of Tim Burton, I mean, you know, when, when you guys invited me to be on this podcast, I, I went through his filmography and I was like... Wow, I've pretty much seen nearly every one of his movies. Yeah. And it's not because I tried, it's because he's become such a cultural icon. Yes. And definitely. You you just see all of his movies. I mean, Sleepy Hollow, I, I didn't mention earlier, was the first rated R movie I ever saw. Oh wow. Um uh, and so, you know, again, like you're saying, you know, the criticism, you know, we don't understand him. It's like, well, no, so many people can relate to him now that you know, we can't just take it lying down anymore. You know, we're like, hey, like we understand you, but Let's try to move Step somewhere new with this. Yeah, but, you, you yeah. can do better. Let me, let me, I know, but at the same time, let me praise Tim Burton because he is one of the most successful directors ever. And at the same time, is so idiosyncratic and, and just very, has a very specific singular vision. Distinctive. That he, very, very distinct. distinct yeah. Rarely compromises. And in Hollywood, that is amazing. Yeah. There are people who have found fan bases um, like Kevin Smith or John Waters through their very singular movies, mm-hmm. but their movies are never successful. And Tim Burton has found a way to to be both make the kind of movies he wants to make, which sadly aren't always interesting. And sometimes it feels like he doesn't really care. You know, sometimes it feels like he cares more than other times, but he's clearly making the kind of weird movies he wants to make. And he's making a ton of money off of it. And like, no one does that. And that's, yeah. that's I think he just needs to impressive. work on an original idea again. Yeah. Instead of dipping his well, feet into I mean, stuff Corpse that... Well, I mean, Corpse Bride is his original idea. He, he wrote a book, of, he wrote sure. this like children's book called Oyster Boy, and it's horrible. Like, I don't think he needs an original <laughs> idea. I think he needs to collaborate. I think he needs to, I don't know. Cause Charlie just, Kaufman. He feels, no, he feels emotion. <laughs> like, again, we can't... Tom cycle. Stoppard is writing... <laughs> We can't uh, we can't psychoanalyze him, but it feels like he's like emotionally stunted, and it feels like at this point in his life that he doesn't have anything more to say than he did in the eighties is very sad. He you know he's doing his thing, and yeah. it's making him a lot of money. God bless him. And I and I'll always say I'll never hate a filmmaker who finds an audience because that that means all of those people who love him they wouldn't have had those things if it weren't for him. No, yeah. and they're not, they're not wrong. And even no, it's and, just, just and not for me. I mean, I'll even go out and say like, I'm glad Adam Sandler makes movies because he makes oh. movies. Well, no, 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 listen to quote, to quote, no, hear me out. He makes movies for like eight year old boys, which is good because there aren't any eight year old boys in Hollywood making movies. And if Tim Burton has to make movies for 15 year old girls, that's fine. Cause there aren't any 15 year old girls in Hollywood making movies. So it's good that someone is out there making those movies. Yeah. I'm just not going to yeah. probably go. No, no, no. <laughs> God, no. I, it will take a lot to get me to go see a Tim Burton movie in the theater. But On that sad note, we do yeah. have to wrap things up here on the Director's Club Steven, podcast. Steven, uh, thank you so it, it much for joining us. It was an honor having you on, You were very yeah, – you, you guys. Great. I, Definitely I, you need know, you I on really again. I love what you guys are doing here. And again, you know, it's not just about gushing over something you love. It's really about – 
taking a look at something critical. And, uh, you know, we've been, we've been pretty critical of Tim Burton, but I, th- I think there's a lot to love here as well. Absolutely. And I think people will see and that. I, that's, that's why I really didn't mm-hmm. want to stop and emphasize that he has a lot to, he has a lot of praiseworthy things about him because, right. um, I think he has sort and you of, you can just watch Ed Wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he has sort of an interesting, he occupies an interesting place in film history. And I, mm-hmm. I think those are the directors I most like talking about. Yeah. Are the ones who sort of carved out their own niche. For sure. Yeah, Definitely. All right. Well, yeah. Um, do you have any websites, Stephen, that you want to plug? Any anything that? Ooh, uh, this you know? is. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm enjoying my. Uh, I'll have to plug syndromestudio.com. It's the company I work for now. And oh, great! They do all kinds of stuff, and it's a big Hollywood thing. But um, oh, congratulations! That's great. Congrats. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's fun. All right. Awesome. And then, of course, if you want to email us, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's directorclubpodcast, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> directors. Our website, again, yeah. where you can find all the information on the contest and other things we've mentioned. Right. We do have a podcast. Yeah. We have a voicemail number. Yes. What is the voicemail number? The voicemail number is not available at the moment. Just go to the website. Yeah, the website we have it listed. Uh, leave us a message if you have a question send or dirty a messages. Comment. Yeah. Oh yeah, send us just some... send obscene. Get yeah, us hey get hey dirty. get us yeah. there. You know what I'm saying? Talk about your dick. <laughs> <laughs> God, please don't please don't leave messages about your dick. Uh, yeah, just follow the, again. Um, we're going to be doing more shittacular stuff on the blog, so uh, keep following, yeah. checking that. We're going to try. I'm, trying to make sure we update that on a at least every other day basis i'm trying to keep content up there so uh keep visiting tell your friends if you like it again it always helps rating it on itunes leaving nice reviews all these things help us find more people um yeah and you can check out my twitter at instant jim and check out patrick at patrick Patrick rapol uh yeah at patrick rapol yeah yeah thanks again steven it was great having you on thanks again guys all right um, and we'll be talking about Michael, Michael Winterbottom. Michael Winterbottom with uh, Row Three Zone Kurt Halfyard. So we're yep. looking forward to that. Find us in a couple weeks. Thanks, everybody. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. Take care. No, it is. We got them dry parts. We got them wet parts. We've got a couple silent ones on there. You're gonna have to turn the volume up for those, folks. Oh, the farts we have. Oh, the farts. Who doesn't like a good fart? Dab, 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 dab. And it only costs you fifty-three million dollars. <laughs> What's this over here? Apple pie farts. <laughs>